Greetings listeners, Craig here with a brief message before you listen to the podcast that you've clicked on. This is being released during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labour of the writers and actors currently on strike, the thing you're about to listen to us talk about wouldn't exist. We stand with those on strike and support their desire to be recognised for the wonderful work they do. Now please enjoy our discussion. Hey, my name is Sean Doyle from The Expanse and Star Trek Discovery, and you're listening to the Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents... Neil Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that is unlikely to burst into song, but you never know. I'm not likely to do it. I will lock myself in my quarters before I ever sing in public without alcohol. Well, what am I doing here then? (laughs) What are you doing here? We'll find out. I'm your host, Craig, and we are here to discuss the second season of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And joining me, the voice you heard, is the template for the emergency podcasting hologram. It's Issa. Hello. Hello, I'm also programmed to enjoy Star Trek Strange New Worlds. <laughs> but this is the real you. It's like that Deep Space Nine episode where Louis Zimmerman turned up. Yes, yes, it's exactly like that. The other me is, is currently like cooking and cleaning and doing all the tasks I don't want to do. Sent down the mines. <laughs> We've got superior podcasting holograms now, and the old ones are sent down the mines. That's the way it works. <laughs> you know, it's sad. I can now envision a future where that might actually be a thing. <laughs> I think the podcasting holograms are more likely to send us down the mines. We yeah. need you anymore. Off you go, humans. Maybe insane. But yeah, Strange New World Season 2, you are here to discuss that, so that's fun. Yes, I'm very excited to get into it. I have lots of thoughts about Strange New Worlds. Cool. Well, before we get into Strange New Worlds, let's talk a bit about your Star Trek origin story, because you've never appeared on a Star Trek podcast before. No, I haven't. You have appeared as a guest talking about a Star Trek thing on a news podcast, but that's not the same thing. So what is your Star Trek origin story? How did you get into the fandom in the first place? What was your entry point? So I started to tell you about this before we started recording, and then I was like, I'm going to stop because it's better on the recording. Obviously, I'd heard of Star Trek before this because cultural phenomenon. Because you live on this planet. Because I live on this planet and enjoy genre fiction. But the first Star Trek thing I actually ever watched, I was on an Erasmus exchange in Bulgaria and one of the guys who lived in my corridor found out that I also liked sci-fi and fantasy and stuff like that. And he was like, Star Trek Into Darkness has just come out and there's no one else in our friend group who will go and watch it with me. So will you go and watch it with me? It was in English. I wasn't sure if it was going to be in English or not, but it was with Bulgarian subtitles. So that was my first ever experience of actually watching Star Trek. And even my friend was like, I'm really sorry after the film ended. And my main memory of it, honestly, was good points were, wow, this cast is, for the most part, this cast is really good. The main people. And from what little I know of original Star Trek, I feel like they're portraying these roles really well. But then the main negative thing I remember, other than just the movie, was when Benedict White-ass Cumberbatch was like, (laughs) my name is Khan. And I was just like, excuse me, what the actual fuck? 
and burst out laughing in the middle of the cinema. I do not know anything about Star Trek Khan, but I was like, sir, that is not your name. (laughs) (laughs) Then the friend who took me to see it was like, I promise you the first one is better. And I don't know, you might enjoy some of the other shows. And we watched the first one and I did prefer the first one to the second one. And then when Beyond came out, I did go and see that. And I also like beyond then god i think when i properly got into it was when discovery had been announced and i was curious about a modern star trek show and in line with that i think was when they put a bunch of the older shows up on netflix and i started watching voyager and ds9 and then that was when i got really into watching the shows into darkness being your entry to star trek that is interesting i know (laughs) i'm baffled that you chose to continue watching after that because I hate that film. I just really hate that film. Oh, it's a terrible film. That can scene you're talking about is hilarious as well because there's a pause left after he announces himself for the audience to gasp. Yeah. And <laughs> half of the audience will be thinking, why is that significant? Who's Khan? Most people don't know who he is. Most of your intended audience don't know who Khan is. And then the rest of the audience will be annoyed because you've done it when you said that you weren't going to. Oh yeah, they advertised it as this guy is not Khan, right? I found that out after the fact. Yeah, John Harrison. We wouldn't do Khan. We wouldn't step on that. No, you did. And you just (laughs) ripped off Wrath of Khan for the climax. Yeah, annoyed me. Don't get me started on Into Darkness. I'll never stop. This is now an Into Darkness podcast. (laughs) I'm here to talk about Star Trek I actually like. Yeah. (laughs) I never watch Into Darkness. As far as I'm concerned, the reboot films are the 2009 movie, the first 10 minutes of Into Darkness, because I like that bit. Yeah, that was quite good. And then Beyond. Beyond, I feel like it's quite underrated, maybe because it came out after Into Darkness and both established fans and just general cinema goers were like, well, that was garbage. Yeah. So not a lot of people went to see Star Trek Beyond. I think it did very badly in the box office. It did, yeah. But it's really good. (laughs) It did well critically and... Star Trek fans, on the whole, seem to like it. But it's like you say, by that time, people were like, well, the last one wasn't very good. Why should I watch this one? And they left it too long. And they marketed it with terrible trailers. Did they? Yeah. I don't remember really watching the trailers. The trailers were awful. Oh, okay. I watched the trailers and I was like, God, this looks like another misfire. Oh, no. (laughs) And then I went to see it and I was pleasantly surprised. I don't think I even watched a trailer. I was just like, sounds neat. Okay, (laughs) let's go watch another one. Because even though Into Darkness was bad... I do sometimes enjoy watching bad movies in the so bad it's good way. So I was like, well, even if it's bad, at least I'll have a fun time. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it was really good. Also, the makeup in that movie, like the alien makeup and stuff is incredible. Yeah, it's good. And they're never going to make another one, probably. F tier. (laughs) Because they keep hiring directors and then shelving the projects. (laughs) That's what keeps happening. Yeah. I've talked about this before, but it's interesting how it's supposed to be about the early years of the original series crew. That was the point of doing this alternate reality reboot. And now you've got Chris Pines in his 40s. Yeah, it's not happening now, is it? He's approaching motion picture Shatner age. Yeah, doing a lot better on it. Well, I mean, 40 now isn't 40 30 years ago or whatever it is. Yeah, that's fair. I guess Strange New Worlds is sort of that now. It's obviously not the core original cast but i could see a, a world where they do like five seasons of strange new worlds with this cast and then transition into the main original cast or whatever well that's what i think is going to happen but we'll definitely talk about that in the the canon section yeah so strange new worlds you've seen both seasons what do you think of the two seasons and well we're here to talk about season two so that one preferably that one overall i would say strange new worlds is my favorite of the modern live action shows 
there is a lot that I love about it. I have my criticisms of it. We'll get into that. <laughs> but yeah, like I remember when Anson Mount and the others showed up on Discovery and it was just this like, injection of charisma and they also kind of altered the visual style to go along with it and this sort of evoking that retro 60s style, but in a more modern way. And it just worked so well. And obviously now with Strange New Worlds, they get to just completely immerse themselves in that vision and I think it works really really well. The cast is really good. Even in episodes that aren't my favourite episodes or there's a few episodes I dislike but even within those episodes I don't just hate watching them because usually there's still good moments within it whether it's like good comedic moments or good character moments and the cast is so good and it's so visually appealing that I still just find it really watchable. Also the music's really good and I'm not even just talking about the musical episode. That's actually something I noticed more because I did a rewatch of season two before this and I don't know if it was having watched the musical episode or something but I just paid more attention to the general orchestral score and noticed how they kind of evoke again that more classic 60s style of music but in a modern kind of way. Yeah, Nami Melamad is the one who does the score for this. She also worked on Prodigy as well and she's sort of an understudy of Michael Giacchino so she learned at his feet. Oh, okay. Cool. I can tell that now that you've said it. That makes a lot of sense. Also, she, like him, because I looked up the soundtrack on Spotify and Michael Giacchino always does punny names for all the tracks and she does that too, I guess, because the Star Trek Strange New Worlds album on Spotify has some really funny track names. <laughs> I think he composed the theme for Prodigy, Michael Giacchino, but Nami Melomad does all the incidental music and she works on this show as well. Maybe that's only a season two thing. I'm not sure who did season one. Good for her. Yeah. You don't hear about a lot of female composers on anything. Yeah, still kind of a rarity, <laughs> sadly. So yeah, that's cool. Interesting, you were talking about liking the injection of Pike in Discovery Season 2. I saw some criticism to that at the time. I forget who it was, but someone pointed out after this diverse first season, now we have a middle-aged white guy showing up to teach them how to Star Trek. I could kind of see that. I mean, that's fair, but Lorca was also a white guy. <laughs> yeah, but he was teaching them how not to Star Trek. Yeah, both of the shows are pretty diverse. And I think that something that's really good about Pike is that even though, yes, he is like a middle-aged white guy, typical protagonist for this kind of series, I think that in some other ways, he's not a typical show protagonist because something I think is really valuable about his character is how he almost becomes this beacon of anti-toxic masculinity in so many ways. The fact that he's shown cooking and wearing an apron and it's never turned into a joke. It's something that his crew love about him is that he nurtures them and cooks for them. And, and it even becomes a way he can be heroic in season one in the Pirates episode. Him and Mbenga, I think, in this series are some really good examples of positive masculinity in a lot of ways. wonder if the cooking affectation is an Anson Mount thing. I wonder if he likes to cook and that's why Pike likes to cook. Maybe, I don't know. Because it's just such a random thing to ascribe to him otherwise, isn't it? It just feels like quite a random thing to bolt onto his character. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be interested to know where it came from, whether it was a production decision or whether it came from the actor trying to connect with the character or whatever. But even in Discovery, before he was more fully realised, he was shown to be very nurturing and caring, especially when you compare him to Lorca, who's just like disaster human. But yeah, the whole point was that he was supposed to be a foil to Lorca and be more caring of the crew and stuff like that. So I can see why they might latch on to something like that, but I'd be interested to know where the cooking thing came from. It wouldn't be the first time a Star Trek actor has brought something of themselves into their character. Riker plays trombone because Jonathan Frakes plays trombone. 
for yeah. example. Stuff like that. There's people that like to sing because the actors like to sing. The Doctor. The Doctor likes Italian opera because Robert Picardo likes Italian opera. Fair and valid. The counter example would be Garrett Wong, who doesn't play clarinet and got made to pretend to play clarinet. And neither does Harry Kim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something he talks about. Season two, I liked a lot. It was better than season one, I thought. Season one had oh, okay. a few duff episodes for me. You can listen to me talk about that on a different <laughs> podcast, but I preferred season two. I think it was more consistent. It feels like the show is finding its feet a lot more. I like that it's more of an ensemble piece than season one was. They're starting to give some of the characters more to do. They haven't quite solved it yet, but they're getting there. So it was better overall. There's things about it I like and things about it I don't like, which we'll of course talk about. Nothing's perfect. That's why we analyze stuff. Yeah. But very good season of television and it's unreal how long it's going to take us to see any more of it. I know. I'm I'm so sad. <laughs> I mean, I'm sad about the strikes for a lot of other reasons too. My favourite show returning would be nice, but there are more important things to worry about with the strikes, especially as someone who actually works in the industry. <laughs> Put them back to work so we can see more Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not that I could work on Star Trek. Well, you never know. If I could work in America, that would be fantastic. But yeah, I just realised I didn't actually say what I thought of season two specifically, which is interesting because you said you thought it was better than season one. I don't know if I would say one is better or worse, but I guess I feel like maybe I had more episodes in this season that were misses for me than I had okay. in season one. But I also felt like the highs were very high in this season so yeah that's interesting well my favorite episode of the show actually is, is in season one the children of the comet i think that's just the most original series episode they did mm -hmm. i think it was really good and they did more characterization with ahura than they did in the entire original series and through all six movies in one episode that's something i love about strange new worlds oh Uhura's finally a proper character no offense to michelle nichols the woman was amazing it was not her fault but uhura was very much a side character in the original series i mean to be fair the original series never claimed to make anybody outside of the top three main characters only three actors appear in the opening credits so yeah. The fact that anyone else gets anything else to do is something. It was never billed as an ensemble piece. Yeah, that's true. Plus it's off the time, etc. You can't necessarily judge things by the standards that we have today. Oh yeah, for the time that the original series came out, it was doing some very groundbreaking things. Well, obviously we can look back on that with a modern lens and there are some things that were still like pretty bad for the time as well. And then there are some things we view differently from our lens now. So shall we go to spoiler alert then? Raise the shields and, and get stuck into this. Yeah. Make the lights turn red. I'll change the bulb <laughs> and we'll play a persistent, annoying noise for the rest of the podcast. No, we won't. I always thought it was really ironic how when ships go to red alert, they make it harder for everyone to see what they're doing at a critical moment of crisis or peril. <laughs> <laughs> it's so dark. How is anyone getting out of this crisis alive? <laughs> People have all tried to justify it by saying maybe it makes the panels brighter so they can use them. And I'm thinking, no, that doesn't work. You can still trip over something. If you're inside a Jeffrey's tube, you're fucked. <laughs> yeah, you're screwed. You're stuck. It's one of those weird things. I guess in the J.J. Abrams movies, when they went to Red Alert, it just changed the colouring, but I don't think it necessarily got darker. Honestly, don't remember. Yeah. I know, it's just this weird thing. But anyway, I'll change the light bulb and... Thanks. We'll dull the noise so that we don't have to hear it the whole time, because <laughs> how annoying would that be? That's the thing about serving on a Starfleet ship as well. You get driven mad for eight hours a day on the bridge just with it whistling at you all day. Yeah, true. There's a lot of things that would be really annoying about serving in Starfleet. Yeah. 
Those bunk beds. Mm -mm. No, thank you. Sitting at the helm while you're at work. Like, what am I doing? There's nothing to do. I just have to sit here. All your computers just explode on the mildest impact and give you severe burns. <laughs> Explosive consoles, sparks raining down from the ceiling. No seatbelts. No seatbelts. <laughs> anyway, let's go to spoiler alert before we mm -hmm. get off on another tangent. Okay, so I've broken this down into ongoing threads to begin with. We'll hopefully cover everything, but it seemed to make more sense to cover character arcs. So we'll start with the one that I know you're most passionate about, Spock. Oh boy. <laughs> I'm not talking about my cat. He gets enough attention. Oh, is the cat called Spock? He is called I've Spock. I've forgotten that. Aww. He gets enough attention, so it's not about him for once. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Spock and his duality so season two picks up after the events of season one obviously the ninth episode had him release some anger around the Gorn and it seems that that broke down some of his emotional control and he's really struggling with it he can't keep a lid on his feelings and whenever chapel enters the room his heart rate raises because we'll talk about it, but modern star trek is essentially a cw show oh yeah and honestly i'm kind of here for it we'll get into <laughs> it, that more when we talk about laon it has love triangles it has delayed gratification on people telling each other their feelings it has lots of talk about feelings it's got lots of young pretty people running around doing stuff yeah it's great. Love it. Star Trek is CW template 101. It really is. And now they have singing too. It's basically just becoming Glee. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. It's becoming Glee in space. And we're going to get Starfleet Academy eventually, maybe, which will essentially be Riverdale in space, probably. I hope it's as buck wild as Riverdale. <laughs> be interesting. Probably won't be, though. I don't think they'll go into it as hard. So we have Spock struggling with his emotions. So let's do that as a starting point then. Did you think that was a reasonable place to start? I know a lot of, well, some of the fandom is annoyed about the fact that Spock expresses emotion at this point in his development because they think he should always be this stoic and emotionless person, which I definitely don't think is the case. But what do you think about that as a starting point for his character, that struggle being more on the surface than we're used to? As a concept, I'm fine with that. Firstly, I don't think this show should have to adhere 100% to everything that the original series did. That show is 60 plus years old. Yes. But secondly, if memory serves me correctly, earlier on in the original series and in the pilot and stuff, Spock was a bit more emotionally expressive and then they kind of altered that. So if you are a stickler for canon, I guess... That could still line up okay. But in the context of this show, which is the more important thing, that makes sense as a narrative and emotional through line that last season he was kind of struggling with those things. And then it all got sort of brought to the surface in a quite, I guess, intense way, because that's how emotions work. You had an intense trauma or emotional outburst, and then it takes time to sift through those things and figure them out. That concept I'm fine with. And I also think Ethan Peck is really good as Spock, and he portrays that really well. The thing I have more of an issue with is how they keep tying it back to bioessentialist racism against mixed race people. And I guess it's most stark in the episode Charades, where they once again did the storyline where a mixed race character or alien hybrid character gets split into their quote unquote two halves, although in this one it's just him becoming fully human. But it very much echoed the episode Faces with Balana and Voyager, which, oh, lucky for you viewers, I wrote a master's degree essay about. Yay, look forward to this. If it's available online, we can put it in the show notes. It's not, but I don't know, maybe I should do that. So 
basically a, an ongoing criticism I have of Strange New World in general is that with Spock and with some other aspects of the show, such as the Klingons and the Gorn, we'll get into those later though, is they seem to consistently misunderstand nature versus nurture and rely on this misconception that what would actually be culture is biology. And that leads to some really uncomfortable things when you look at Spock as a mixed race allegory, which he is, among other things. Because when we come to an episode like Charades, what they're basically portraying is the idea that a mixed race person is a fractional being and not a whole person. That Spock is these two halves that are somehow disparate within him and fight with one another, which is what we saw with Balana in Voyager as well. And that doesn't mean there aren't moments that work for me, particularly because Ethan Peck is so good as Spock, but they've been doing this since season one, where Spock's only main storyline is, wow, I'm mixed race. <laughs> and the show portraying that as, it's basically the tragic mulatto trope, which for anyone who doesn't know, is a trope about mixed race people in media where mixed people are portrayed as inherently tragic and miserable and doomed and usually doomed to die or befall other unfortunate fates because of being mixed race, usually black and white mixed race. And when we translate that into media with, say, aliens or fantasy creatures, you usually see it with characters who are, say, half-orcs or half-elves or Vulcan hybrids or whatever, where it kind of feels even more ridiculous in some ways because it heightens the elements that stem from racist thinking, which is that whiteness and blackness or non-whiteness in general are inherently antithetical and have these imprinted, embedded qualities that will reflect in a person. And so if you have a mixed race person, you, they inherently have these dichotomous qualities that can never mesh. And with someone who's human and Vulcan, but raised culturally Vulcan, when he's turned into just human, for me, it doesn't work at all because he's still Spock. He still has all the memories of growing up as Spock being raised on Vulcan. So why should some alteration to his physical form and biology alter his entire personality, his accent changes, his manner of speech changes? It does in a lot of ways reflect those racist origins of these tropes like the tragic mulatto. So yeah, I have a lot of issues with that episode in particular. And with that being Spock's one through line, I do wish that the show would give him other things to do, but it seems like every Spock episode is basically just gonna focus on that, which in some ways I get because they're before the original show at this point, so I can see why that's what they want to do, but it just feels quite regressive for a show coming out in 2023 to still be portraying the same beliefs about mixed race identity that Voyager did and that the original series did. It feels like we should have moved on, but maybe the show is trapped because it's set before the original series in some ways, but also just portrayal of mixed race identity is still that bad that I also just think that the writers genuinely might think that what they're doing is fine. And a lot of people don't know about that more academic side of the issues with mixed race representation in those ways, but I still see them and have problems with them. Yeah, well, as a TV writer, it should be your responsibility to find out. If you're going to do a mixed race story about a mixed race character, it should be your job to find out or maybe hire someone that has experience of that yeah. and then they can write <laughs> a science fiction 
spin on their own experience, something like that. Yeah. Although one thing I, I did see people talking about, what you said never really occurred to me, but I'm coming from it. You can't see me because this is a podcast, but <laughs> whiter than white. So my experience of that is, is somewhat limited. My direct experience of it is somewhat limited. And my perception of Spock is also colored by me knowing him from the original series. So when they do a Spock's human and Vulcan halves are warring again, that feels fine for me because that's the way that they've always done Spock stories. And I actually think one of the issues that Strange New Worlds has is the writers, the showrunners, the producers, whoever don't feel comfortable enough or they're not adventurous enough to push the boat out beyond what people might expect from these things. I, I think that Strange New Worlds could be even more experimental and play around with different things in different ways. But one thing I saw online about it was the differentiation between species and race. It's not that Spock is Italian and English or something. It's he's Vulcan and human. And in Star Trek, and you'll know this better than I will, from RPG stuff is that races they have specific or species will have specific traits and in Star Trek it's the same the Vulcans they're stronger than humans they have more powerful emotions than humans so they suppress them the Klingons they're really strong and they're really angry all the time that kind of stuff so Spock's Vulcan species traits will be in conflict with his human species traits if that makes sense Mm -hmm. And maybe it doesn't, but you're here to correct me if I'm falling down a rabbit hole here. No, no, we're here to discuss the show. So I can see why people make that argument. But the thing is that ultimately this is a work of fiction. These aliens don't exist. And if one day we find out they do, then we can have that conversation later. <laughs> but in terms of portraying aliens in fiction, very often sci-fi aliens as well as like fantasy species and stuff like that have traditionally been very heavily racially coded because that was a way in which typically white authors would make them seem more foreign and other to a presumed majority white reader or viewer. Yeah, the Klingons were oriental in the original series. Yeah, they literally used that word to describe them in the original script. There's no doubt about it. And we'll get into the Klingons because I'm using <laughs> that in this season too. And like you mentioned, the Klingons are very heavily racially coded. It's kind of become a bit more of a mishmash now. Again, we'll get into that. The Vulcans are also racially coded, especially watching the original series. I feel like they're very strongly Asian coded as well. And in Strange New Worlds, in Charades, they kind of brought that to the forefront again by having T'Pring and her family be South Asian and their cultural customs as a family slash Vulcan customs that they're used to seem to be a bit derived from stereotypical South Asian practices and stuff like that. So given that it's a work of fiction and these aliens don't actually exist and these characters are racialized by being depicted as aliens, you know, with Spock being racialized as a mixed race person and stuff like that, having that be a factor of their existence has uncomfortable real world implications. <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. Because it's still stemming from even just racially coding them in the first place, like with the Klingons, how they're coded as barbaric and strong and warlike, and then the way they are visually designed ties them to stereotypes about particular ethnic groups, like first mostly Asians and now a mixture of Asians and black people. And then there's a little bit of stuff thematically with Russians and the Cold War, but in terms of racialization, they are very much this mishmash of Asians and black people. And then you think about how black people, for example, are stereotyped in the real world, stemming from slavery, stereotyped as being stronger, but less intelligent, more physically durable, but not capable of deep thought and stuff like that. And you see that reflected in how the Klingons are 
portrayed and then the way their makeup looks. Yeah, I honestly think Star Trek has a lot of issues with racial coding and bioessentialism with its aliens that I don't think it's ever fully recovered from. I think it has as many in a lot of ways as like the works of Tolkien or Dungeons and Dragons do, but because the humans in it or the Federation are portrayed with this very progressive idea of having a diverse cast and trying to show humanity having moved past its bigotries and stuff like that. Overall comes across far more progressive than fantasy works often do, but when it comes to the aliens, specifically the way it makes aliens other is to racialize them based on real world ethnic minorities. The idea that a mixed race person could be split into their individual components is like, ridiculous. <laughs> Especially when you think about someone like me, I'm not just part non-white and part white. Both my parents are mixed race, so what would I become like five people? That would be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that episode. It's just inherently ridiculous when you think about it for anything other than an alien. So then with aliens being so strongly racially coded, to me it just comes off so ridiculous. And I don't think Star Trek has ever really reconciled with that fully. One example someone gave, and I don't know who it was, and I've lost the reference to link it in the show notes, unfortunately. If I can find it again, it'll be there. If I can't, then it won't. It would have to be something I can find very quickly. Anyway, they liken Spock to being more like a dog. As in, if you crossbreed two dogs oh, of different yeah. species of dogs, then the child will have behavioural traits that are common to both of those breeds, and you might get one of them that are more dominant than the other. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of uncomfortable when you're talking about a person to yeah. like them to a dog in any situation, but especially with a mixed-race-coded person. <laughs> yeah, but I found out a more easy-to-understand human example, so to speak, than mm -hmm. the idea of someone being half Irish and half... Spanish or something. Because as far as I know, Spanish people aren't inherently DNA bound to be a certain way. Exactly. <laughs> You'll be a product of your environment. But different species of dogs will be genetically predisposed to behave in certain ways. Not that there won't be exceptions within that, but they will be. If you get a pet and it's belonging to a certain breed of dog, you can expect them to be certain ways. Or they'll tell you, watch out for this because they're typically... I've heard that, but my Jackapoo does not behave like we were told a Jackapoo would behave. <laughs> it wouldn't be a perfect comparison or a perfect example because you will get the exceptions to it and even the pet will be a product of its environment. But it'll be, here's the things you can expect, I guess. And I'm phrasing this horribly. <laughs> but I can see how you can liken that to hybrids in Star Trek, specifically the idea of the franchise has built these races to be, or these species to embody certain traits, because it's just easier that way for television, isn't it? The Klingons are here. This is how we can expect them to behave. And they'll behave either exactly as you expect them, or there'll be a nuance in there that they don't expect. That's the way it goes. And I think about it in a video game RPG, you select a character. And if you selected the Klingon in Star Trek Online, you would see the strength stat is higher than it would be if you selected a human, for example, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that kind of thing comes down to the same issues you have with D&D &D and racial stats and stuff like that, yeah. which this is not a D&D &D podcast, so I'll not get into it. <laughs> so what I'm trying to understand myself is the whole difference between species and race, because Vulcan by itself won't be a race. I don't know any of the cities or countries on Vulcan, but they will exist. Yeah, that's the thing they do a lot is condense Planet alien hats. species. Planet of hats, yeah. Which I feel like nowadays maybe you could be moving away from that more. Considering that DS9, for example, did a lot to nuance 
species like the Ferengi and the Klingons and stuff, I feel like seeing a modern Star Trek show, which I acknowledge is set before shows like DS9, but seeing a modern Star Trek show, and it's not just with the Vulcans and the Klingons, you have it with the Orions and with the Gorn as well. Like seeing this show lean so heavily into the idea that your personality and moral values and physical attributes are just directly tied to your race, no matter who you as an individual are, is really sad. It feels really regressive. And for me, it does detract from the show, even though it's a show I really love. When those are the topics that come up, it does admittedly disappoint me. Because that's basically the message it's sending is, well, all Vulcans are this way. Every Vulcan has the same personality because they're a Vulcan. Really think about this for five minutes, please. And I'm trying my best to shatter my preconceptions of what I expect certain species in Star Trek to be, because it's been a lifetime of thinking along those lines mm -hmm. when watching the various shows. So when someone tells me that Spock's Vulcan and human halves are at war with each other, I think about those stats that the history of the franchise has ascribed to these different species. Because, well, they've never really done it with another planet in Star Trek. And they kind of have with Earth, actually. You get people with different accents and it's, I grew up in yeah. this country and I grew up in that country, but they don't really do much with it because the whole point is, it doesn't matter what country you're from in Star Trek, everything's honky-dory, everybody loves each other. The French have English accents now for some reason. <laughs> Humans get to be diverse. Yeah. Aliens are just other and planet of hats as i said when you consider how racially coded most of the aliens are that is largely where that problem stems from in attributing personality to race particularly with people like the klingons and even the vulcans as well that is something that white supremacists and racists have tried to argue in real life as a way to harm and oppress people of color the idea that all black people are this way, all Asian people are that way. It comes from the same mentality. I'm not saying that the people writing the show are being openly, consciously racist. I'm not saying that at all. I actually think that in a lot of ways, the show does a lot of really good things with racial representation as well, particularly for characters like Umbenga and Uhura. But I think that there's still just this echo of bioessentialism embedded in Star Trek when it comes to aliens and racial coding that just still hasn't been shook off. Yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from on that. Maybe in terms of that struggle that Spock deals with, they could simplify it more in a way. As in, they've always said that Vulcans have much stronger and more volatile emotions than humans do. And their brains obviously will be made up in different ways. Their brains have the capability to come up with those mental defenses. They are touch telepaths, things like that. So there are genetic things that differ. Yeah. That's something else that I don't know, maybe I don't know enough about Star Trek, but something else about charades that kind of confused me was that this idea that Vulcans supposedly have stronger emotions than humans, they just, as a culture, suppress them, right? Yeah. So if we're to believe that it works the way they say it works in Star Trek and Spock becomes fully human and now he no longer has his Vulcan personality, quote unquote, wouldn't he find it easier to keep his emotions in check because human emotions aren't as strong as Vulcan emotions? For me, that just didn't work. They explain that by saying that he's going through adolescence for some reason. Which is also weird. So not only is he a human, he's a human teenager for some reason. I think that was put into hand wave an explanation as to why he was being very emotional. Because otherwise, if he was just fine, they wouldn't have been able to crack as many jokes at his expense. Yeah, which also felt kind of uncomfortable. Oh, you're all just making fun of your mixed race friend or your racially coded friend or because Spock is also read very often as autistic or neurodivergent 
coded. And because a lot of what that was was making fun of his manner of speech and stuff like that, can also just kind of be read as you're all making fun of your autistic friend, which is also uncomfortable. Well, Discovery established that he's dyslexic, didn't it? Did it? Yeah, they established in an episode of season two of Discovery that he's actually dyslexic. Oh yeah, was that in the flashbacks? I think Amanda tells Burnham or something like that, that he had that to deal with when he was growing up, and that was another thing. I had forgotten about that. I think the writers have, because it's never been brought up since. Yeah, if that's accurate, I feel like I remember that too now that I think about it. Then yeah, that strengthens that connection to Spock being neurodivergent coded. Now he is explicitly neurodivergent, not just coded. I think I would be interested in this idea of Spock exploring what it means to be mixed if it was approached more from the angle of him getting to explore his human heritage. And I was quite excited to see Amanda show up even though I wasn't really enjoying that episode because I feel like she's a character who maybe doesn't get explored a whole lot. And I did, to some extent, enjoy Spock turning to her and saying, I'm acknowledging the hardship you went through as a human on Vulcan and acclimatizing to a culture that was completely alien to you. I felt like that was good. So yeah, I'm not saying that there was nothing I liked about the episode. Also, Pike's comedic moments of background acting and reactions in the episode were absolutely impeccable. Anson Mount is so funny. But yeah, I think if they were exploring it more from the angle of Spock wants to explore human culture because he grew up in Vulcan culture, even though he is mixed, that would lessen the issues that crop up around the tragic mulatto trope and bioessentialism when it comes to his portrayal. Yeah, some of the best things in that episode, I wasn't a huge fan of charades as an episode either, but that was more down the attempt at comedy angle. I just didn't find it that funny. With the exception of T'Pring's dad, who wanted to love everything (laughs) and his wife was like, nope, it's crap. And he's like, yeah, it is. (laughs) Poor guy. Anything for a quiet life, that guy. Sir, get a divorce. It's not worth it. He knows how to just get through the day, doesn't he? That's the way that he does these things. But the attempts at comedy, I didn't find that funny. It was good to see Ethan Peck just play extra, though. I think he did that really well. Laughing raucously at a joke that wasn't that funny and stuff like that. He seemed like he was having a good time. Good for him. The scene where he was eyeing up La'an when she acknowledged that he was essentially a horny teenager and he was like, yeah, I kind of am. And then, oh, this is uncomfortable. Kind of felt unnecessary. Laan, really? <laughs> Let's never speak of this again. Yeah, that kind of felt unnecessary. I did like the gag with the hat just because, again, Anson Mount is very funny. <laughs> and him being like, yeah, I have one too. That was great. You've seen Pike's hair though. He doesn't wear hats. No, no, no. <laughs> never wore a hat in his life. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we see him wear a hat in like the first episode of season one, but he's never worn a hat in his life. <laughs> Well, that's just because it was cold and he was outside. It had space for his hair. It's like a really tall hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or he just has enough product in there that nothing can shift it. That wasn't an episode I liked that much, but I did like the moment of recognition when he says, I understand now what you went through because Vulcans suck. They are actually not great people. Honestly, so many Vulcans are assholes in these shows. <laughs> so elitist, just turning up to insult everyone. They have a ritual where it's, we're going to insult your future husband or wife. We're going to roast you. <laughs> just crazy. And then to Pring's mother, she's just nasty for no reason. Yeah. I feel like I should look up who actually wrote this episode, but it did feel like it also leaned on these really stereotypical ideas about South Asian families and culture and stuff. And I'm not saying that that stuff never happens, but it did feel a bit like This is our one idea of how to racially code aliens as South Asian, is to make them really obsessed with marriage and really judgmental and really callous. It is in line with how Vulcan rituals have been portrayed before. 
It is. So I can see the writers not looking too far outside of that. They read the Memory Alpha article on Falcons and then think, they do this, let's do that. And maybe they had a mock time on in the background while they were writing this episode. Oh and- yeah, I can see that maybe they just didn't think about it too hard. And obviously they'd already cast to Pring. They didn't necessarily know they were going to do that episode when they cast to Pring. I believe the actress is South Asian or mixed South Asian or something. Gia Sandu, I think her name is. Yeah. So... I can understand how they ended up there. It's once again me asking people to think about it for five minutes before doing it. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. And I think there is definite room for more depth in there. We have seen the conclusion of Spock's arc towards finding out who he is. The Undiscovered Country is effectively the conclusion of that. You see him in The Next Generation, which is set after that. But that's effectively the point where he is at his maximum. He's completely sure of who he is. And in that film, he gives advice to Valerius about logic being the beginning of wisdom, not the end. That suggests Mm. that he understands that the Vulcan way isn't the we all and end all of everything. And if you look in the original series and Journey to Babel, he has a conversation with Amanda, funnily enough, about how he chose the Vulcan upbringing. That was a choice he made when he was young. And I've seen people try to argue that, well, that means he shouldn't be exploring his humanity at all. And thinking, well, no, because just because he chose that when he was young doesn't mean he won't question that choice as he gets older and want to do other things. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about being mixed is I know for me personally, there have been multiple points in my life where I feel like I've had to or felt the want or desire to explore or re-explore aspects of my heritage and what that means for me as an individual. And that is a very common thing. It's also like a diaspora thing. There's a lot of similarities between diaspora and mixed race experiences, but when you're both, then it becomes even more intensified. And you can definitely read Spock as being diaspora and mixed in a lot of ways, although he did grow up on Vulcan. I haven't seen The Undiscovered Country yet. I'm thinking maybe I should watch it, but a friend of mine who's seen more Star Trek than me described that ending for Spock to me, and I was like, oh, it's nice to know that there is a version of Spock who's just chill with being Vulcan and human and isn't, oh, I'm at war with myself all the time and stuff like that. You see it from Leonard Nimoy's Spock and the 2009 Star Trek movie as well. Mm, When he's giving advice to his younger self, do what feels right. That's something he's learned. Trust your gut sometimes. Yeah, so that's nice. When he says to Kirk, I just lost my planet, I am emotionally compromised. He's not ashamed of having feelings anymore, which a younger aspect of him would have been. No, I didn't feel anything. Stop it. That's sometimes the way he would react to things. In a mock time after he believes he's killed Kirk, and then Kirk reveals himself to be alive, and he he does this outburst where he grins and yells, Jim, and grabs him. (laughs) And then he recoils and goes, "Um, yeah, I'll be on the bridge. (laughs) And he's a bit nervous, and McCoy's laughing at him. Speaking of making fun of your mixed-race friend, McCoy would often say some pretty racist stuff too. Dude, McCoy is horrible. (laughs) Whenever I go back and watch some TOS episodes, I haven't watched all of TOS all the way through. I've mostly just watched episodes here and there. But yeah, whenever I watch TOS, I'm just like, McCoy... Shut up and get fired, honestly, because this is just workplace microaggression or macroaggression constantly. (laughs) Again, all the time, wasn't it? And (laughs) it ended up becoming their dynamic because Spock would give as good as he got. He would often come back with a slur against humans and that was just their thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a debate we shouldn't get into about the whole abuse in the workplace it's, it's fine because he's laughing about it or whatever so maybe not i don't think spock was fine with it i wouldn't be <laughs> but he would give as good as he gets that's a fact whether he yeah. approved of being constantly 
called a green blooded hobgoblin or whatever oh my McCoy God. wanted to call yeah. him. That's a different conversation, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea of Spock exploring his feelings in this season doesn't stand out as being wrong to me because he is younger and it's something that he's maybe going to want to play with for a bit. And they specifically bring that up in the crossover episode where Boimler says, you're not supposed to smile. And he's like, well, I'm doing this now. This is what I want to do now. And I'm not going to change that just because someone from the future tells me I should be a certain way. Yeah. The episode having these horror movie shots in slow-mo whenever Spock would smile was (laughs) fantastic. It's a commentary on canon as well and commentary on gatekeeping. The idea of Spock's not supposed to be like this. Boimler thinks that. And then he comes to the realization of, well, just because he's a certain way in the history books doesn't mean that's who he is. He comes to realize that these people that he idolizes are people. And they have their off days. They're doing different things. Or they were just more nuanced than a history book can ever tell you about them. Yeah, exactly. they were a whole person. And I think the show in general is often making some commentary on the idea of what is canon and should you adhere to it, which I think it kind of inherently has to because of Pike's through line. I imagine that maybe they knew with that being Pike's narrative that oh maybe that's a core conceit of the show that a lot of other things reverberate out from and so you can explore these storylines with Spock exploring his emotions and being in a relationship with Chapel and how a crew member from a future Federation ship sees what they perceive as deviation from what a person should be like according to what they know and stuff like that. Yeah and it's all quite well explored actually the idea of oh, I didn't realise my heroes were actually people That's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) It's the, I guess, meet your heroes trope or don't meet your heroes. Either way, sometimes you meet them and they live up to your expectations. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you'll just humiliate yourself in front of them constantly (laughs) if you're Boimler. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes you finally meet them and then you realise that they're not interested in you. They don't want you there. You're annoying them, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. When I met William Shatner at a convention, the first Star Trek convention I ever went to, there was a perception that ended up being shattered. Because if you watch Shatner, when the camera's on him, he's talking to fans. He's super into it and whatever. But when no cameras are on him, he's not like that at all. Mm, I've had that. I had a photograph with him and he wasn't even addressing people directly. He was just rattling off. Hi, how are you? Nice to see you without even looking at people. And there would be this conveyor belt of people that would stand next to him, get a photo taken and then leave. And he wouldn't acknowledge that you exist. And I was like, ah, that's not how I wanted to experience meeting Captain Kirk. (laughs) Yeah, that's a shame. I've heard some things about him. I'm like, oh, it seems like you're not such a great person, are you? Yeah, and and to be fair, he doesn't have to be, right? He doesn't have to be Captain Kirk. He's just an actor. And whether I'm disappointed by meeting William Shatner doesn't affect the fact that I like Kirk as a character and I like him as an actor as well. The fact that he didn't spend five minutes talking to me, I guess, is is my own pride being dented. (laughs) But I did end up getting another photo with him because they were doing a, you can get a photo with him on the bridge of the Enterprise. And I was like, yeah, I should do that. Why not? Never do it again. And I I walked up to him and I said, you're in my chair. And he glared at me and I was like, right, he knew I existed for a second. I accomplished something. (laughs) (laughs) Annoy him to get him to acknowledge your existence. Yeah, it worked. For a brief second, he was like, what a douche. And then I left. (laughs) So that was good. Fantastic. So Boimler experiences that and Mariner as well. They meet the crew of Pike's Enterprise and they realise that there are people with their own stuff going on and they're not these put together historical heroes that they thought they were. And Spock feeds into that with the relationship to Chapel. Chapel finds out that she isn't historically significant as far as Spock is concerned, because 
Boimler has never heard of us. <laughs> <F> bro. <laughs> The Chapel relationship, that is a major deviation from canon as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't bother me, but it is a fact that it's a major deviation because their dynamic in the original series is that she was head over heels in love with him and he didn't notice. He wasn't capable of noticing. Yeah. And she was very, I'm just a woman. I'm just going to swoon and say I love you and pine for you. That's all I can do. Product of the time. And Chapel wasn't a main character. She wasn't even a secondary character. She was a way, way background character, even though she was, I don't know if she was married to Gene Roddenberry at that point. Wasn't she the same actor who was originally the number one who That's appeared right. in the first pilot? Yeah. What a downgrade of a character to get. <laughs> to get cast as. Yeah, well, that was one of the conditions for the show getting picked up. They couldn't have a, a woman first officer. Ah, Star Trek, so progressive. It wasn't Gene Roddenberry's fault. It was the studio's fault. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> the studio. They said no. We're okay with an alien first officer, but not a woman. But not a wom. <laughs> <laughs> it's not happening. And of course, you had that line in the cage where Pike said, you'll never be comfortable with having a woman on the bridge. Oh, uh, yeah. And he was like, not you, number one. You're different. You're not like other girls. Yeah. It's just like, oh, <laughs> shut up. There was that meme that was coming out when Discovery Season 2 appeared, you know, when Pike puts his hand on the console to transfer the command codes and it brings up his service record. And it's, oh, look, I failed this class. Probably should ignore that. Like people photoshopped in the, I'll never get used to a woman on the bridge. And he's like, oh yeah, probably should ignore that. <laughs> I haven't seen that. That's great. In canon, you said this. <laughs> Pike. Misogynist. Not this Pike. But yeah, that's something... I know we're going like character by character right now, but that is something I really love about Strange New Worlds in general, is how it takes characters who were underserved or not main characters, or whose roles were either like eliminated or reduced due to bigotry and limitations at the time, and gets to explore them and make them into the fully fleshed out characters that they could have been. That's something I think is really fantastic about the show, and have that with Chapel and Una and Uhura and even Ortegas, I think. Her name is a reference to a character they wanted to have in the original series, but didn't make it into the final version or something. It's really nice to see that with this more diverse cast, getting the characters who are not the white dudes getting so much more focus. It's also a majority female cast, which I think is really cool. In Star Trek, you usually would have two women in the main cast, if you're lucky. Even the established characters are practically blank slates. Pike, you can do whatever you want with him because you only have the cage to go by. In fact, they've changed him because he's not a misogynist like he was in the cage. <laughs> now he's positive masculinity. He's the opposite, yeah. The only character that has a lot of material associated with them outside of now Kirk as we have him is Spock. And everyone else is practically a blank slate. You can do almost whatever you want with them. It was when they gave Ahura a tragic backstory, I was thinking, do we really need this? Do her parents need to be dead in a shuttle accident? Everyone in this show has a tragic backstory that they're willing to blurt out to you at a moment's notice, just like a D&D &D game. <laughs> or in Discovery, everyone has a tragic backstory. Yeah. It was like in Picard. What's it going to be like 25 years after the next generation? Oh, everyone's miserable. <laughs> That's what I envisioned for these characters. Everyone's had a rough time in the last 20 odd years, 30 years, whatever it is. That's what I wanted. What did I want for Riker and Troy? Dead son. But with these characters, they've hit the ground running and they've just come up with stuff for them. The familiar ones, they're all practically new. There's no real expectations of them. I yeah. don't think anybody really has any expectations of Pike. Yeah, and Pike has also appeared very differently in the J.J. Abrams movies. and so He was a very different character in those films. And I think for the most part, I know I've been criticising a lot of stuff with Spock. I do think, in general, Spock is portrayed very well. Ethan Peck is really great. 
I just wish they would move away from this like tragic mulatto narrative. But even there, I think they're doing a lot of justice by these characters. And then with the characters who are less fully formed to begin with, they're taking them to some really interesting places and giving us versions of these characters that we probably couldn't have had in the 60s. Yeah. So much more fleshed out and nuanced and forefronted than they would have been at the time for the ones who were featured and then for the ones who never even got to exist. Now they get to exist in a way that they never could have if they did get to at the time. And in terms of the Spock and Chapel relationship, a lot of people criticised it for the reason that I said that it is against canon. They clearly didn't have a prior relationship in the original series because that would change their dynamic completely. And it would essentially be resetting them as well if that was the case. So Chapel went from pining after him to in a relationship with him to eventually pining after him again. It would be a weird non-progression. Yeah, I'm just kind of of the opinion that I don't really care because this portrayal of her is far more interesting and nuanced and numerous. Yeah, she's an actual character this time. She's a person. I really like Chapel as a character. I can see there being some potential issues with the idea that so much of her as a character is still tied to Spock, but I do think they do a lot to give her her own personality and story outside of just being Spock's girlfriend or the one he pines for and stuff like that. Especially also, it's really cool that the blonde nurse in a white uniform also just gets to throw down and kick ass sometimes. <laughs> yeah. The issue I had with the Spock and Chapel relationship wasn't the fact that it existed. I was fine with that, but I feel like they skipped over so much of it and then got rid of it before it could be anything. And I think this is a persistent issue with Strange New Worlds in general. I feel like there's entire episodes that we don't see. So there's stuff that happens between the episodes that we just don't see. So you pick up at the start of the relationship and then the next episode, they're just sitting playing chess and out on a date, just as normal. Yeah, I agree with you that the pining lasts for ages. And then once the moment happens where they kiss, then it feels like we're seeing these like fast-forwarded snapshots of a relationship. I mean, it's gone from them getting together to them being comfortable enough to just sit and then discuss what their future's going to be in the space of one episode. Yeah. It doesn't work because we just don't see them as a couple for any length of time before they're throwing another milestone at us. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's something I criticise on CW shows all the time. <laughs> You're creating drama in this relationship that I'm not invested in because all you've done is hit these pinch points. I don't know why I should be invested in them. Oh, I see you've also watched Glee. <laughs> well, any CW show. The Flash, Barry and Iris, they're classic for that. Everything is a milestone. You don't really see much of them just being together. In The Flash, I never watched it beyond parts of the first season but i believe it's one of those shows that has 24 episodes a season or something like yes. that so in that show while well, there really is no excuse you've got so much show here yeah in strange new worlds i do wonder if it's a bit of a symptom of having 10 episode seasons which i know we talked about when we covered prodigy briefly i understand why a lot of streamed shows in particular do 10 episode seasons now so they don't have to pay the writers as much. Yeah, that side of it aside, I do feel like with a show like this in particular, we'd get so much more space to explore the characters and who they are and their dynamics between each other if there were even like 15 episodes in a season. And Prodigy has such a strong sense of who the cast is and how they connect to one another and having developed from one very different point to what we have at the end of season one. I do think the characters and their relationships are a strong point of Strange New Worlds, but there are some places where it feels underdeveloped like 
Spock and Chapel's relationship, like you said, as well as there was some other weird stuff this season with, for example, Pelia, who I'm sure we'll get into later, but the episode where her and Una kind of have it out, I was like, there is nothing setting this up because I've rewatched it now. At first I was like, they haven't interacted at all. They've interacted once. One exchange when La'an comes back in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, they exchange literally like a couple of sentences or something. And that's the only time Una has ever been shown speaking to Pelia. And yet we're supposed to believe that this tension has built up over time and it just doesn't really work. So yeah, I do wish that we got more time to explore these characters and see stuff like Spock and Chapel's relationship develop more step-by-step instead of just seeing only all the extreme moments. Yeah. And the show is asking us to generally buy into certain things that it hasn't earned because there isn't that time. Stuff like, this crew are practically like a family. They're all willing to go to bat for each other. We have a crew that are willing to band together and steal a ship together because their connection to each other is more important than their careers, so they say. But you haven't earned that because we haven't seen that connection build. It's a similar issue that Discovery has, although Discovery had the time and just refuses to do it. You have the bridge crew saying, yeah, we're a family. We all came to the future together. Wait, what's this guy's name again? Yeah, I couldn't name three of you if you held a gun to my head. (laughs) (laughs) At least in Strange New World, I can name every character that you see on screen. They're distinct enough. You have Mitchell on the bridge, for example. She's around sometimes. Chief Jay, who's replacing Chief Kyle because the actor got another job. He's there. Good for them. But Kyle is still on the Enterprise. He's referenced. You just don't see him. He's in the bathroom right now. It's his day off. Someone else is on the transporter room today waiting for something to happen. You know, like Chief O'Brien standing around. Yeah. Nothing going on. (laughs) Just here. No, nothing ever happens to Chief O'Brien. He's always fine. (laughs) I feel like I buy the idea of them being very close-knit, maybe more than you do. I do feel like they did some things to sell that in the first season, but I do wish we had more of it. I agree with you there. You know how a lot of episodes of, say, like Voyager or DS9 or whatever were just kind of open with a not too short scene of just characters interacting before they set up the main plot of the episode and goofs and weird interactions or even uncomfortable interactions or funny moments or whatever. I kind of just want some more of that. We do get it sometimes, but I wish they had more time to pair different people up so we got to see the rapport between different people or strengthen the rapport between particular people. One thing I've found in it's a modern TV thing in general is that every scene has to be important. It has to be integral to the plot of the episode or it has to further a season-long arc in some way. One of those two things. A scene can easily just stand on its own. You get that all the time. And the one I always refer to is in Deep Space Nine, Way of the Warrior. It's the scene where Garrick goes for a drink in Quark's and Quark discusses the Federation with them and compares it to root beer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you drink enough of it, you you might start to like it. And that scene doesn't do anything to the plot of the episode, but it's amazing world building. Yeah, it's world building. It develops those two characters. Yeah. There's ways you can do it. You could have a scene be important to the main plot, but you could start it off by having, I don't know, two characters are talking about nothing. They're talking about their interests or whatever. And then someone comes in and says, sorry to interrupt, I need you to do this for me. And then you're back on plot again. That's one way to do it. Or you could just tighten your plot and just have a scene that doesn't have to be like anything. There was one, actually, this season that I thought, it was in Ad Astra Perispera, where you have Ortegas and Mbenga sitting there observing Spock talking to the Vulcan lawyer guy. And it's like, you can tell they hate each other. Look at them. That scene has nothing to do with the plot. In fact, even Spock coming over to them has nothing to do with the plot. It's just there. And it's a good character building scene. Or I suppose it tells you something about the guy as a lawyer, but where Spock comes over and he just kind of sighs and then says, I'm sorry you had to see that. Sorry for that outburst. Yeah. <laughs> 
It was a good scene. Give it the root beer award, I guess, for being not connected <laughs> to the plot, but very valuable in its own right. Do more of that. Oh, look. Wow. We got to learn a little bit about Ortegas's personality from that. Wouldn't that be nice to have more of that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't have to do much in order to develop these things, but you need three scenes that tell you the same thing sometimes. No, you don't. It's just you don't trust the audience to remember what happened two minutes ago. Yeah. It also means we lose one of my favourite things to get unnecessarily annoyed about in a funny way from shows like Voyager. It would be like one of those cold open scenes and a character goes into the mess hall or whatever and sits down with a plate of food and they're like, oh boy, can't wait to eat this delicious food. And then they get interrupted and they're going to walk away from this full plate of food. It's just going to go to waste and I'm going to be hungry. Well, we just mentioned Riverdale. People have said, do they ever finish a milkshake in that show? They're always <laughs> having milkshakes and never drinking them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you always see it in TV shows. Usually characters will be eating salads or something because it's really easy to just have a character be like, I'm holding my fork. It has a piece of lettuce on it, but the salad isn't disappearing and you never need to see me eat it. Yeah, well, food is a nightmare for continuity, isn't it? If you're doing different takes of the scene. Absolutely. People on TV eat in a way that no real person eats because nobody... I can't remember what show it was I was watching recently. I think it was Superstore or something. That's one of the shows I've been watching recently. Where a character is just sitting there with a fork with one blueberry on it for a whole scene, <laughs> waving the fork around. Just like, nobody eats blueberries like that. <laughs> in TV, you also have people going miles to have a two-minute conversation and then leaving to go home again. Yeah. Or talking on the phone, arranging to meet someone later, but not setting a time. And then not saying goodbye properly. I love these weird things about TV. <laughs> I'll see you at lunchtime. When's that? I'll meet you at the creek at sunset. That is so unspecific. <laughs> <laughs> on the Enterprise, it's fine because you're in one location, kind of. You yeah. just have to find out what deck they're on. Yeah, you just be like, computer, where is Mbenga? Yeah. Oh, the medical bay, what a surprise. They're in that weird 60s style bar that's been on the ship the whole time, apparently. Oh, I love that bar. I love to think about who is that bartender and is their only job being a bartender? Imagine getting just hired as a bartender on the Enterprise and you have no other duties. You just get to mix drinks well, that's what on Gainan the cool did. spaceship. <laughs> yeah. Or is there an ensign rotation where every ensign has to do a stint at the bar? Got bar duty. I want to know the bar law. Tell me, Star Trek. <laughs> I'm sure they named it, but I didn't catch what the name was. Of the bar? It has a name, but I don't know. You'd think on a ship that big, there'd be more than one bar, actually. You'd think. It's a lot of people for one bar. Maybe it's just because I'm a Brit. Well, it was the thing with 10 Forward, wasn't it? The idea it's supposed to service like 2,000 people. And it's always empty because extra is <laughs> expensive. When you see it in generations and the place is mobbed, you can hardly find a place to stand. That's what it's supposed yeah. to be like because there was a film budget and they had the budget for extras. But yeah, you would imagine there'd be recreation facilities everywhere on different decks. Yeah. Because how boring would it be being on the Enterprise? Should we go to 10 forward tonight? Do you want to see Data's violin recital? Nah, not really. Not another one. Is there anywhere else to go? The holodeck, but you might get murdered by Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> There's 2,000 people on the ship and we have three holodecks. Yeah. <laughs> Are they all busy? I don't know. Do you have anything else on Spock and Chapel's relationship before we move on? Or Spock in general? Probably, but I feel like we've been talking about them for so long we should give somebody else some airtime. <laughs> I do feel like I'm... I'm just kind of waiting to see what they do in season three with the relationship because they hinted that it could be a thing where they held hands, that maybe the trauma has brought us back together again or something. I'm, I'm kind of over it at this point with Spock and Chapel. <laughs> I like them both individually, but let it lie. Let Chapel go and do her fellowship, please. 
what's probably going to happen next is she's going to go and hit it off with Roger Corby and she'll get engaged to him and then that'll play out some way or another. Yeah, like I said before, I hope that Spock gets storylines that aren't related to being a tragic mulatto alien. Because I feel like Ethan Peck's performance is so good that for me it's a waste not to do it as well. And I enjoyed Amanda and would like to see more of her, I think, if they were going to have one of his parents show back up. Yeah, well, canonically, they can't have Sarek show up because they're still not speaking and they don't speak again until oh, Journey yeah. to Babel. Also, oh, yeah, they set up Cybok like forever ago and that's not paid off yet. And I'm still like, huh, okay. You're being very patient for a show with 10 episode seasons. I really don't want them to do Cybok, I think. <laughs> They'll make a mess of that. You know it's going to be uber tragic mulatto as well again. So <laughs> maybe not. I'm just like, oh yeah, they set that up. Like we were talking about with the limited episode numbers per season. It does sometimes feel like stuff gets set up and then immediately paid off and they kind of have to rush through it. They're really letting that one simmer. The one I found weird with the Spock and Chapel relationship is they get together after Spock's... They don't even break up. They take a break and they get together like five minutes later. Yeah, and then we're expected to believe that that's a relationship that's going to be fine. Ah yes, my rebound girl. I mean, it's felt like the show has just been pushing, oh, well, Spock and Dupring aren't going to work out. And we all know it. We all know it because Spock isn't a proper Vulcan. And we've seen a mock time, or at least some of us have. Yeah, I have tragically seen a mock time. A mock time's a classic, mostly because of the music. The music was good. I will say I watched it in the context of writing an essay on Star Trek's problems with mixed race representation through alien allegory. So that was very much the lens I was viewing it through. It's a classic largely because of the music and Kirk and Spock fight and stuff. People like that. And I get why they did the we're on a break thing because they didn't want Spock to be unfaithful. That's a bad look for a character. Did T'Pring break it off? I'm trying to remember exactly how she phrased it. I think she says, I think we should take a break. I mean, it's the French thing, isn't it? We were on a break. What does that we actually mean? We were on a break. Yeah. What does that mean? It means Rachel can sleep around and you can't. That's what it means. <laughs> Poor Tupring. She really did nothing wrong. Tupring tried so hard. <laughs> she did. And what does Spock do? Waits five minutes and then hooks up with someone else. And then snogs Chapel. Yeah. <laughs> and I get it from Chapel's point of view. She even points out that she was hoping to just be a distraction for Spock for a while. She was kind of happy with that. And it's already been established she's okay with casual relationships. In the previous season, her lack of desire to commit was something they made a point of. Yeah, I get that the relationship is more played out from Spock's perspective than hers necessarily, but it does feel like they just kind of dropped aspects of her characterization to get her together with Spock quicker. Oh, definitely, yeah. And it was the most CW conclusion to the Spock's human for an episode plot. As in, Chapel solves a problem by admitting her feelings for him. Yeah, I did like the concept of the aliens from that episode. The idea that the mega bureaucracy aliens was quite funny. Hyper-evolved customer service. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You didn't log a complaint in, in a reasonable time, so we're not upholding it. Yeah, that's quite funny. Well, firstly, the idea that they saw Spock's mixed heritage as an impurity that needed to be fixed. There's some very uncomfortable language said in the episode around that. Yeah, they were trying to get the fact that they thought there should be two humans on the shuttle and 
yeah. they filtered out the not human stuff. But yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's just another one of those things. Guys, think about it for five minutes and <laughs> consult a mixed race person before you write this into your episode, please. Or maybe just don't do the mixed race person gets split into two quote unquote halves episode because please can this be gone from media now? But then also the idea that they wouldn't accept that Chapel really cared about Spock until she admitted she had romantic feelings for him is kind of weird. Yeah, why do they care? Yeah, why do you care? You're just a customer service robot. You've evolved beyond such things, but they're into the gossip. I guess that fits for customer service people. They're just Riverdale fans. <laughs> Everyone's into the shipping. That's what it is. Yeah. It was all facilitating that strange episode, that one. Yeah. I did like seeing Chapel, Ortegas and Uhura going off on a bit of a mission together. The Lower Decks trio almost... Yeah, the show hasn't put a huge focus on it, and I would like to see an episode in season three or beyond where we get the girls' trip episode with them. But they have done a good job of, in some of the incidental moments that we do get, showing how Chapel and Ortegas are very good friends, and then Uhura is now kind of part of that group. Well, she's pretty new to the Enterprise in comparison. Although I suppose Chapel is as well, because she wasn't there in Discovery season two. She came on with Mbenga, which is relatively recent. But she obviously knew Ortega's from before. Yeah. But yeah, I like that friendship dynamic and I would like to see more of that play out, please. Same. Yeah. Again, it's the world building thing. It's the thing that lets me buy into the fact that this is a crew that like and care about each other. Mm -hmm. And I totally buy Chapel and Ortega's being friends. They are such little sh** lords when they're together and I love it. So yeah, on to Ortega's then. They gave her more stuff to do this season, although not enough to do. And... People have been trying to forgive the reduced role for her because she asked for time off because her partner, unfortunately, died yeah. recently and during the filming or before the filming. So she asked for time off. But I still think that that's an opportunity for the writers to make the time they have with her meaningful mm-hmm. rather than just saying, well, we didn't do much with her because we had less time with her. No, that's an opportunity for you to use that time more wisely. I completely agree with you. I think... It's completely understandable that the actor wanted a reduced role this season, and it's good that they were able to give her that. I do think that, therefore, in that case, if you know you're going to give her one focus episode with, I guess, not A-plot, but B-plot storyline dedicated to her, and then in the Klingon War episode, she has C-plot as well. If you know that that's all she's going to get, then it feels like her main storyline, which is the, I forget the name of the episode, The Lotus Eaters? Among the Lotus Eaters. Among the Lotus Eaters. Her main storyline in Among the Lotus Eaters just being her forgetting she's a pilot and remembering she's a pilot feels like a massive waste considering Ortegas just comes across to me as such an interesting and cool character who I want to learn more about. The actor is really compelling, plays the role really well. They've set up a few things about her and her personality and her attitude where I'm like, okay, cool, I love this, give me more. And that was a perfect opportunity to give us more and it feels like it was a bit of a waste and it's not the actor's fault whatsoever. We got like a little bit of that in the Klingon episode, which I'm forgetting the name of. (laughs) Under the Cloak of War. That was the time. Under the Cloak of War, thank you. But Benga and then, to a lesser extent, Chapel were the focus of that episode, not Ortega's. She got, like, a little bit. But what little bit we got there, was it was interesting. In Benga and Chapel, they were in the same place that Ra was. Ortega's was just in the war, but she wasn't there. Yeah. She's standing there at the beginning just saying racist sh- 
about Klingons. There's just some language that could have been removed from that and it would have been okay because yes, ultimately she is a war veteran and she has trauma, but the way the show is handling Klingons. Anyway, we'll get to Klingons later, I guess. But yeah, I just, I want more from Ortegas. And I was also wondering if maybe originally in Among the Lotus Eaters, she was supposed to go down to the planet's surface and maybe the decision was to remove her from that storyline because of her asking for reduced time or maybe because participating in that storyline might have been triggering for the events that she was experiencing at the time or something like that. But I want more from Ortegas. I would love more from Ortegas. The thing is, the writers have shown themselves capable of adapting to a request from the actor to alter the role. Anson Mount asked for less time because his child was born. So he wanted to have his schedule moved around a little bit. That's why he's barely in the first episode, because that was filmed around about the time that his child was just born. And then that's why you see him as more of a background mentor figure for the rest of the season as well. And I think that's actually had quite a benefit because it has made the show more ensemble. It makes the show better because it means that they have to use other characters. Yeah. And Rebecca Romaine, her schedule is clearly very busy because she's never there. <laughs> and when she is, it's for a minute or two and then she goes away. Yeah. She had her one amazing standout episode. She did, yes. But then after that, it's, we're poorly hiding the fact that we don't have much time with her. Yeah, you were the one who first mentioned that to me and I was like, oh, now that you say that, yeah, it is visible that that's what's going on. But yeah, with Ortega, so I think it's then another shame where when we come to the musical episode, which I love, the actor who plays Ortega, I follow the Star Trek Instagram and they post little videos with clips of interviews before each episode and stuff. And they posted a video where basically it's revealed that Christina Chong was pestering them nonstop about doing a musical episode and that's part of why they ended up doing it, which I think is fantastic. But then from watching that, I found out Christina Chong has a musical theatre background and Celia Rose Gooding has a musical background and so does the actor who plays Ortegas, whose name I'm forgetting right now. Melissa Navia. Yeah, Melissa Navia. Also has, I think she said, a musical theatre background. Okay, I get it. A musical episode you have to do more rehearsals, you have to do choreography, it's a lot longer hours so maybe it wasn't possible to include her as much but it's a shame that then she also only gets solo tidbits in ensemble songs rather than having a storyline or a song there and then her one bit of a song is her being, don't forget I'm a pilot! <laughs> you could have given her something else to sing in that song. See I just assumed that she was one of the actors that wasn't comfortable with singing. No, she's got a musical theatre background. She's a good singer. You can hear it. She does get a bit of more focus in the finale, doesn't she? Kind of, but not really. But yeah, she's just sort of there. It just reiterates the other thing that you know about her. She's a pilot and she's friends with Chapel. Those are the two things. Yeah. Ortegas is an underserved character and there are some reasons for that having happened, but I do feel like they could have done more with what they had with her availability. They set up this idea that she's a bit bored in her job, which... I think anybody can relate to the idea that this is what I do and I'm a bit bored of it. It's not challenging to me anymore, that kind of stuff. And then by the end of the episode, she's like, I fly the ship and that's great now. And it's not the only time they do that in this season as well. The idea that someone maybe wonders if they could be doing more and then ends the episode by concluding, actually, I'm where I need to be. It's fine. They do that with yeah. Chapel as well when she gets turned down for the Vulcan Fellowship and she concludes, well, it's better on the Enterprise anyway. It's probably one of those well, we need to keep our characters on the ship. Yeah, and there's also a bit of that nostalgia reverence for the Enterprise because it's the Enterprise. No one could ever dislike the Enterprise. <laughs> it's the Enterprise from the original series. I think Strange New Worlds does a good job of not leaning too much on nostalgia to the point of not being its own good show. 
but you do sometimes feel that, well, it's the Enterprise, well, he's Spock, so he's got to be the most important person who ever lived, kind of thing. It wouldn't make sense for them to have that level of reverence at this point because the Enterprise hasn't gone on to do the things that it is known for doing. These characters haven't gone on to do the things that they're known for yet. So idolising the Enterprise as a place to be or a historical landmark or whatever doesn't really make sense. I can understand how people might think it's the plum assignment. They note that it's the flagship, so it's important at this point in time. Which is another thing that annoys me. In the original series, it was just one of the fleet. It was just a Constitution-class ship. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Fake Star Trek fan. There was 12 of them, and the Enterprise was but one of them. Oh, okay. So yeah, maybe that's another symptom of bigging up the Enterprise's reputation based on nostalgia for the original series. Although I don't think the original series ever said it wasn't the flagship. It was just pretty clear that there's more Constitution-class ships and this is just Mm. one of them. So it doesn't break canon in that way, but the idea of it just being a ship. But then this is a timeline where Enterprise exists and Enterprise was the first Warp 5 ship. So the ship named after Enterprise would be important because it's named after Enterprise. It doesn't need to be the flagship. It's strange. So in the case of Ortega, she ends up, as you say, forgetting that she's a pilot and then remembering she's a pilot. I don't really like the messaging of, I'm okay now, I'm I'm not bored with my job anymore. Because I had a traumatic event. Today was exciting, but then the next week she's like, oh God, I'm bored again. Yeah. That's what happens in jobs that you don't like. You randomly have a day that was okay. This day was fine. I was in and, and people were in good spirits and we had a laugh. Yeah, or something breaks up the monotony. Yeah. Like... Everyone forgetting who they are. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone forgetting who they are and having to do pinpoint manoeuvring through an asteroid field and whatever else. Yeah, all that nonsense. It was kind of billed as the Ortegas episode. The first clip that was released of Strange New Worlds was her getting ready for the away mission and then getting told she can't do it. My little heart broke in two when she got disappointed and told, actually, you don't get to come. I know you've got your little outfit on and you're super excited for your school trip, but you don't get to go because your parents didn't pay the admission fee. I was like, no, I'll take us. <laughs> I don't see a permission slip. You have to stay at school and <laughs> colour in or whatever it is. Yeah, that's a shame. I quite like the dialogue in that scene, actually. When Spock was talking about a celestial body exploded or whatever and Laana I think says to him couldn't you have just said a moon and he said I could but that would be leaping to a conclusion <laughs> and then Spock tries to comfort Ortegas in a way and she's just like nah don't just don't you don't <laughs> want to hear it take your logic and shove it <laughs> but of course she had her in the balance of terror timeline where she was randomly racist towards Vulcans because as we've established from the under the cloak of war she's just a racist apparently <laughs> There we go. We got another character trait. She's just a racist to aliens. (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't like aliens. I think she did a really good job in the episode, but it's kind of a slap in the face that the one time we're going to give her significant screen time, she doesn't remember who she is. So the whole point is we learn nothing about her character because she doesn't know who she is. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's a shame. I'm not against her having that storyline in general. It's just because that's her main focus episode that we get because of the circumstances the actor was in. It's kind of a shame. I would hope that in season three, if the actor is more able to be around for more filming, that we do get just more Ortegas and get to develop her a bit. Or hashtag more Tegas as they keep talking more about. More Tegas? <laughs> I just don't like the messaging of stay in your lane, be happy where you are. Yeah. And it's weird. There's a similarity with Chapel, like you said, where she gets that messaging and then in a later episode, she does get a fellowship somewhere else. 
sings a cool song about it and then she's all jazzed to go on her fellowship and then gone attack and now I'm kind of like oh is, is it gonna be that she stays on the ship now I don't think it will because of the I've already forgotten his name but the character who we know canonically she ends up getting married to in the original series I think they were just engaged. Oh, okay. But yeah, because of that character being mentioned, I feel like she is going to go. But it does feel like it's this constant thing of pull her back to Spock and the Enterprise. And What I imagine they'll do is they'll resolve the season cliffhanger and then the episode will end with her going off. And then the next episode will take place three months later after the Enterprise has had yet another refit. It's had about four since the show started. <laughs> And it'll be, she's back from it now. And it's, I met this great guy there. I've forgotten all about you now, Spock. Look at my ring. Yeah. And then Spock will be upset again <laughs> because that's all he can be is upset about stuff. His life is so tragic. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get that for a while. It harkens back to the network era of Star Trek, right? You can't have the characters move anywhere. You can't have them develop too much because it's a syndicated show and we need them to be where the viewer expects yeah. them to be because we're not expecting them to watch everything. I mean, with this, they definitely have the freedom to do more than that. And I do think, to me, Strange New World seems to be kind of a balance of aspects of it are episodic, but there is a through line and there is a narrative arc and characters do develop and stay that way. Except for Spock, who's always miserable, apparently. <laughs> Doomed. <laughs> Which feels like it's a nice balance of how it would have been back in the 60s versus the extremely serialized Discovery or Picard or whatever. And it's balancing those two things, I think, quite well for the most part. So yeah, I would hope that they can push past that. I think they've failed to do some serialization in places. This is more of a season one thing, but you had it when Laan found out that Una was an Illyrian and had lied to her about it. It seemed like there's going to be some tension there for a while. And then a couple of episodes later, they're playing Enterprise Bingo as if nothing happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's where they can fail with serialization in a way. They don't let these things play out over a number of episodes. And sometimes they do it really well. So it's you have the capability, you're just not doing it. Yeah. And I wonder again if it's a symptom of they only have 10 episodes, so they have to highlight particular things. Yeah. That brings us naturally onto Pike and Battelle. His only major arc this season was related <laughs> to his relationship with her. And I actually found it quite interesting. Because as you've mentioned about Pike, he's this kind of beacon of positive masculinity. And I do agree with that. But if you look at him as, you know, in these 80s cartoons where you have, say, like Optimus Prime or Splinter or whoever. <laughs> yeah, the dad. Yeah, they're always right because it teaches kids to respect their parent figures, their father figures mm. or whatever. They bucked that trend when they did Gargoyles, where Goliath would make mistakes occasionally. Oh my god, Gargoyles, I haven't thought about that in a million it's years. such a great show. Half the cast of The Next Generation are in it as well. Oh yeah! <laughs> At different points. So that bucked that as in not everything Goliath said would be right and mm. people could disagree with him and he would own up to his mistakes and things like that. And Pike is a bit like that. He's the monolithic figure that you can look to for support and everything he says will be right. He's Mr. Federation. Everything he says is a perfect encapsulation of the Federation values. He's a bit like Superman. He's the best that we can be. He embodies those values, but he also makes mistakes occasionally. And Battelle is someone who he makes repeated mistakes with. So it's the idea of she's looking to define their relationship and he doesn't know what to do about it. And he says the wrong thing when she doesn't get promoted and upsets her. And then he ends the episode by making a commitment to her and says, no, I think we should give this a real go. I found that an interesting idea because they're both captains. So they both understand that they will be pulled in different directions. You got a great example of that in microcosm when they're just trying to have dinner and every two seconds someone's trying to contact them to make a decision. Because on a Federation starship, you're not allowed to finish your food. <laughs> it's the rule. Yeah, and 
think one of the calls that Battelle gets is about agreeing a course correction. Are you that micromanaging? Do you not trust your first officer to say, yes, move the ship? Or is your first officer incompetent enough that they're like, excuse me, ma'am, can we move the ship? Well, we're coming from a franchise where only seven people know how to do anything on a ship of however many hundred or thousand. God knows what the others are doing. So there's that. But the idea that they're both captains and they understand the commitments they've both made to the life of a starship captain. I feel like Pike misinterprets their relationship and assumes that she doesn't want anything more serious than what they've had before. And he eventually has to come to the realisation that, well, she does want that and I want that too. And ultimately they make that commitment, knowing that they might not see each other for months. And then they argue about going on vacation later on because he wants to go camping and she wants to go to some cheesy resort or whatever. Yeah. So obviously those two are not the best singers, but the song in the musical episode is very funny to me and fun to listen to because it is essentially a song about him being like, God, you're so basic. You like going on resort holidays. (laughs) (laughs) Although that song did annoy me at the point where she was singing away and no one was just turning off the communication until Lan went and did it. Because they were all like, oh, this is so drama. I love it. <laughs> Spill the tea. You can imagine Uhura sitting thinking, I didn't really need to know this about my captain. <laughs> but that was an interesting flaw to see in Pike, the fact that he can misread things and he's not quite sure about where he stands in this situation. Yeah, definitely. I like how that's also reflected in Ad Astra per Aspero, where he basically has to learn to step away and not try to save Una. Which, you know, he's the middle-aged white dude captain of the Starship Enterprise. So it's interesting to see a storyline where the message for him is, hey, in this situation, you cannot be a saviour. You cannot help her here. You will actually make it worse. And him having to accept that and internalise it and trust in the people who know what they're doing was very interesting. As well as him being willing to just be like, I'm going to sit in this waiting room and die if you don't... (laughs) Help me help my friend. Oh, hell yeah. What an ally. No, she's in a meeting right now. That's fine. I'll just wait here and die. Yeah. <laughs> Guess I'll die on your floor. <laughs> You're going to have to clean it up. Yeah. You don't want to be dealing with that. You might as well let me in. That's awkward. That was the only real arc you had for Pike, which I thought was fine because, again, he's the mentor figure throughout most of it. But it was good to have that sense of him being a person in the midst of that as well. There are a few questions I had about that relationship as well. Battelle doesn't know that he effectively has a terminal illness. Yeah. So as far as she knows, she's in it for life and he knows that he isn't. Yeah. Which I think you could easily interpret as the reason he's not as ready to commit. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily his personality or whatever. I don't think he's a committophobe. I think he is aware that he's got this clock over his head and doesn't know how to tell her that or thinks he shouldn't tell her that because of temporal nonsense and... That kind of thing. Yeah, but she has a right to know if she's going to be with him. She does, I think. By the way, in about eight or nine years, this is going to come to an abrupt end. (laughs) Or will you stand by me when I'm in this chair? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it. It doesn't have to end their relationship, but it does alter their relationship. Assuming she survives, of course. That's very true, yeah. My hopes are not high (laughs) for Patel, shall we say. Yeah. It was at the end of the musical where she said, I'm off on a priority one mission. And I was just thinking, all right, so you're you're off to die. Cool. Yeah. Oh, oh, you're dead. Yeah, sorry. I guess they could do something where they amputate her arm or something to save her. 
should be a way around it, yeah. But in DS9, they have a thing where they have ultra prosthetic limbs. I'm pretty sure that must be a thing at this point in time for Star Trek as well, maybe. I don't know. Or it would be cool for her to just be a character who has a limb difference as well. There must be some kind of prosthetic thing, yeah. But obviously this is a show that will have someone being in a chair where they can only communicate by beeping once or twice. So... Who knows? Yeah. I imagine they'll get around that quite significantly because that's just stupid. Stephen Hawking's chair is better than that, for example. Yeah, you'd think in the far-flung communist utopia future that maybe disability accommodations are better. Yeah. Although in the 60s, they couldn't conceive of such a thing. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's why the chair is the way it is. And then it's become iconic as well. And I think Discovery did a great update of the chair in the brief moment they showed it. Yeah, I think they make it more about the injury. Yeah, rather than the mechanics of the prosthesis he'll have to ride around in. Yeah. Until he gets sent to Fantasy Planet. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested in how the Pike storyline is going to eventually play out. I'm not as versed in disability representation as I am in other things, but I do have a partner who is a sensitivity reader for disability. Not physical disability, more mental and neurodivergency. But he does talk a lot about the nuances of that. And I watched the show with him, so I'm interested to see how that storyline plays out and what they do with it. Because obviously there could be some quite hurtful or negative connotations in terms of representing a person with a disability or who becomes disabled. So I'm interested to see how it plays out. It would be very easy to fall into those things. I think you'd have to work quite hard to work your way out of them. I would like to think the show could do it. It succeeds in some areas and fails in others when it comes to these more nuanced topics. But I think it could do it. We haven't had a main character in Star Trek that's been disabled before. We've had one-shot disabled characters come in here and there. The closest would be Nog, actually, when he lost his leg. Yeah, I'm interested to rewatch that now that I'm watching DS9 with my partner. I remember really enjoying those episodes. I guess Hemmer, when you're talking about someone with a physical limb difference or need to be in a wheelchair or whatever, Hemmer in the last season has a disability. There's some ups and downs with that for me. Yeah, although for him it's not a disability, it's just the way Enar are. They're all blind. Are they? Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't realise that, actually, when I was watching the show. I don't know a lot about the Enar. I don't think they tell you that about Enar, but in Enterprise, where they're introduced... That explains why I don't know. You're told they're all blind. So for Hemmer, it's not a disability because it's the way they are. That's the way they live. That's the way they've always been. Oh, okay. I read that as he is blind, not all Enar are blind. Oh, right, yeah. But because Enar have this extrasensory stuff it kind of makes up for it which is a disability trope in itself kind of daredevil thing where it's like <laughs> you're disabled but it's actually a superpower it's heightened your other senses somehow yeah yeah and there were some ups and downs with Hema. they did kind of tick off a lot of the tropes with blind characters but i think there were moments where Hema really got to shine. I actually miss Hema. It's nice that he got to show up again with the Uhura episode, but it did just kind of make me go, I think they made a mistake by killing off Hema. Firstly, because the disabled character must sacrifice himself for everybody else, but also just he was a cool presence on the cast and I miss his character a lot. Well, disabled by our standards. Uhura did make the mistake. She offered to help him. Yeah. And then he showed her that he could chop vegetables better than she could with his <laughs> eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be clear, I'm saying that he's disabled because to us as an audience, as humans, we eat him as disabled. And then Uhura made that mistake, but it's like, nope, I'm just Enar. That's it. Our eyes yeah. don't work. Although we still have them somehow. That is odd, yeah. I did not know that. And that does change a little bit of how I feel about the character. So that's interesting to know. My headcanon is that it's some kind of evolutionary holdover. They evolved to not need sight relatively recently. Because you see this in other animals and stuff like that. Just these redundant things. Mm. I mean, humans have our appendix. We don't need it, but we have it. That kind of yeah. stuff. 
yeah, Hemmer not being there, I feel like it's a bit of a mistake because he was a good character and I wasn't too crazy about Pelia. I really like Carol Kane. I really like Pelia in the moments where she gets to shine, but I do feel like the character was a bit redundant this season. They set up lots of interesting things with her and in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, she got a really cool role where they set up a fact about her and then paid it off really well. But then they set up the idea, well, Laan's not allowed to tell anyone about the adventure she had, but Pelia would remember what happened. So she could talk to Pelia about it and it never comes up. And then they also, in the first episode, set up the fact that Pelia knows Amanda. And so when Amanda shows up in Charades, I was like, oh, maybe we'll get some Pelia scenes with her and there's just nothing, which feels really strange to have set that up and then not followed through on it at all. In a way, it feels like stunt casting to me. It reminds me of when they brought in Jet Reno in Discovery. She's not around very often because they've clearly only got so much time with the actor. And I feel like the same thing's happening here. So you only get a scene every now and again, rather than feel like a character or a full-fledged part of the cast in their own right. I had some interesting discussions with people about Pelia. It seemed that Americans loved her. And then people in the UK didn't have that same connection to it. She's an American comedian, isn't she? Yeah, she was in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and stuff like that as well. And they're playing to her comedic strengths, as I understand it, within the show itself. Yeah, and she does have a very unique voice and unique cadence that is her thing. So I get it, if you don't like that, then well, that's what she does. So good luck. And it's not that I didn't like the character. It's just that I didn't engage with her. Mm-hmm. as much as I was clearly supposed to. And it does seem to be a almost American-British divide when it comes to the viewing of the show, which I find quite interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I wonder if the similar thing happened in Doctor Who when someone like Catherine Tate was in the cast, because, again, she's a properly British comedian, although she was in The Office as well, I guess, so she won't be entirely unfamiliar. But I think the similar thing applies. Some things don't necessarily translate quite as well. Yeah. That's fair. Maybe I'm the outlier because I liked Pelia. I just wanted, again, for her to have more. And I like Carol Kane. Yeah, I would rather they didn't stunt cast and then you got an engineer that was actually a part of the show. Although Hemmer wasn't in it a great deal more than Pelia was, really. No, actually, because I rewatched season one fairly recently and I realised I think the episode where Hemmer actually shines the most for me is the Elysian Kingdom because we get to see him not in the context of just being a character who is blind or a character who is an engineer. He gets to play comedy and do these other things in that episode and that was where I felt like he was the strongest for me. I liked his usage in the one where the Gorn attacked and he was stuck in the cargo bay with Ahura and he couldn't work and he had to teach her how to do the stuff that he needed to do. Actually, yeah, I did really like the episode as well. But yeah, his usage is quite infrequent as well. But it's more meaningful, I feel, than Pelia is. Definitely. They follow through with Hemmer more than with Pelia. And funny, they're even following through with him more in season two. Yeah, I like that as well. Although, again, the serialization thing, we could have seen more evidence of Ahura struggling with that loss before the one episode where it was important. It could have just been a background thing. Maybe they could have filmed a couple more YouTube videos that she looks at, and they could have had one in an earlier episode. I love that. Hemmer's tutorial channel. Shout out to my patrons, and (laughs) don't forget to like and subscribe or whatever. Uhura's frantically running his Discord server and Patreon now. That's why she's so stressed. (laughs) But liked when Pelia said, he was one of my best students. Actually, he was just okay. But he's dead, so I have to say that. I just said that because he was dead, yeah. I thought Pelia was really funny, and I also loved... 
This might just be me because I was like, oh my God, that's all of my TTRPG characters or at least three quarters of them. <laughs> when she was having the conversation with La'an where she was going like, yeah, these artifacts totally aren't stolen. I work for the archaeology department. They're mine. So I'm allowed to have them. <laughs> They're definitely mine. I'm just like, oh, all of my TTRPG characters. <laughs> I'm just keeping these in case this socialist utopia collapses and I'm going to need some money. Yeah, yeah. I thought she was really funny. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow was, I felt, her best episode. And I'm just sad that they didn't give her any follow-up on that, especially because they go so hard on La'an being so held back and in anguish about not being able to talk to anyone about this experience and stuff like that. Well, there's someone right there who you could talk to and it would probably be okay on the temporal side of things. Yeah. And I do think the infrequency of her appearances is slightly awkward. It's immersion breaking in a way because I don't believe that they're just there all the time Mm. because they're only showing up for important scenes and Jet Reno's the same. Yeah. It's season three of Discovery, for example. She doesn't turn up until like halfway through the season, maybe. Oh yeah, I've been here the whole time. I was in the loo. I've just been here. I've been in engineering the whole time. I'm just always off camera. You never see me. I find it difficult to buy into the fact that they're just a part of the crew in that way. They should do the sitcom thing, like in Scrubs and Community, where they're like, yeah, this character's been here for the whole first season, and they just badly edit them into the background of previously established (laughs) shots, just going like, whoa! (laughs) (laughs) Like I've said, Una's the same. When she's there, it's obvious that she's not there most of the time. Yeah. Although I do like her connection with Pike. I feel like all captains have their confidant that they can go to and it's important for each captain to have that because otherwise they're this monolithic figure that can't ever really get close to the crew. The exception will be Burnham. She's far too open with the rest of the crew just in terms of the way she expresses her feelings and things but I think that's a systemic issue with Discovery more than anything else. I think also she did start out not as the captain and watched her evolve to that point rather than starting with her established as the captain. But she was a first officer, so Mm, she was already in that mindset or should already have been in that mindset. She even references it at one point. She says, being a first officer, I couldn't be friends with the crew in the way that I can be now because I'm not even commissioned Yeah, in season one as it was. So Pike Hazuna, they're clearly friends and he can go to her and be open with her. So he talks to her about the Battelle thing. Kirk obviously had bones in the original series. Picard didn't really have anybody, actually. He didn't open up to anybody. Oh, really? My TNG knowledge is not great. Voyager Janeway has Tuvok. And then later on, Chakotay Chakotay, yeah, she trusts him eventually, but she'll even still always go to Tuvok for different things. Yeah, I like that dynamic that it's the guy you didn't promote to first officer, but he's been around for so long you trust him more kind of thing. Cisco has Dax. Mm -hmm. Every captain, except Picard apparently has that. What a loser. No friends, Picard. (laughs) Billy, no mates. Maybe that's why he's just so annoyed all the time. (laughs) The only person he can talk to is Deanna Troy and she's useless. (laughs) I did always wonder why I've seen so many screenshots with the ship's therapist on the bridge and I'm like, why is she on the bridge? (laughs) What does she, what's she doing? Got this snarling alien threatening them and she says, yeah, he's angry. Thanks, babe. There's a Romulan on the view screen. I sense deception. (laughs) Yes, it's a Romulan. Talk about coding, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you encounter a Romulan, assume they're lying to you until proven otherwise. It's the way it is. Ah, Star Trek. It's all Romulans as well. They all lie to each other. You get that in Lower Decks, though, where they lean into those stereotypes. Yeah, see, Lower Decks actually feels like while it's parodying them, it's also pointing out how ridiculous they are. It's better there to me, because at least they're going like, isn't this silly? Isn't this so stupid? (laughs) Talked a lot about bad serialization or less effective serialization, but I think what they did with Lan was great serialization. They set up something for her to be 
conflicted about early in the season and it never leaves her. She's always dealing with it from that point on. It's already been set up that she struggles to make meaningful connections to other people. That was evident in season one. And it was blamed on the fact that she was almost fed to a gorn as a child. Fair. That would mess you up. <laughs> Actually, in season one, she was in therapy, but that's not been brought up again. Oh, yeah. She doesn't go back to that therapist, which she probably should have. Or, you know, we just don't see it because 10 episodes. It could be mentioned, though. Yeah. Especially when she really needs to talk about an experience she's not allowed to talk about. Oh, Ethical dilemma. Are you allowed to tell your therapist about the temporal incident that you're not supposed to tell people about? Do the time police not have therapists that they can send? Oh my god, you'd think that the temporal agency or whatever the hell they're called, they must have so much in-house therapy going on. Yeah, we're just going to send someone to speak to you once a week and that'll be that instead of... So you just suffered something really traumatic and you just have to get on with it and you're not allowed to tell anybody. Anyway, bye! We're Starfleet honest... And yeah, that's it. On you go. Continue to suffer. I remember there was a lot of people complaining about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow before it ever aired. Uh, I knew people would have complained about it. Because the trailer showed Laan and Kirk working together in what looked like present day Earth. And it was specifically when in the trailer, it was him struggling to use a revolving door. And he said, what? I'm from space. People are like, Kirk wasn't born in space. He's not from space. He's from Iowa. Ah, watch the episode first, losers. Yeah, it's not your Kirk. Yeah, yeah. And also, who's to say that revolving doors are on Earth still? I hate them. So the fact that they get rid of them makes sense. <laughs> I was actually kind of hoping to some extent that that would be the recurring thing they would do. Every time Kirk shows up, he's from a different timeline. Yeah, because the first two times in a row he appears, it's an alternate Kirk who's not going to affect things going forward necessarily. Someone pointed out actually when you see the alternate Kirk on the bridge of that Enterprise, which is a whole other can of worms, like how did the Earth on their own build the Enterprise to the same standard? And then all the same people ended up on it, like Uhura's still there, Ortega's is still there. Well, that's a standard thing with mirror or alternate timeline plots. It's why are all these people still together? The longer this goes on, the less it makes sense. You all applied for the same job, but the evil version of the same job. <laughs> but it's more that Earth wouldn't have the technology by itself to create something to that standard. Yeah, it would have been cool to see, like, maybe it's still an enterprise, but it looks very different. The technology is not quite as advanced or something. Looks more like the NX-1, because they don't have the benefit of all the Vulcan and Andorian and whatever technology to build yeah. on. Someone also pointed out to me that his uniform has the Deltas on the shoulder when he's wearing a different badge as well, so they didn't do any costuming changes. Oh, normally I notice stuff like that and I actually didn't pick up on that. Interesting. <laughs> but normally when they do an alternate reality episode, they have a bit of fun with it. They play around with the costuming and things like that. They did a bit with like modern outfits and going shopping and shoplifting and that stuff. But I mean, more in the alternate reality present day of the show, they usually right, yeah. make more changes. Yesterday's Enterprise, for example, they changed the uniforms and the bridge design and stuff like that, just because they could. And I guess the point of that episode was, we're going to do this on the cheap a little bit, as in we're going to film in Vancouver, and it's actually going to get to be Vancouver as well. Oh, Toronto. But yeah, that was a nice little thing where he's like, it's New York. And she's like, no, it's Toronto. Calling to how so many shows shoot in Toronto and, and try to dress it as New York. Yeah, it was good. I think they had the run of the place because it was filmed during COVID as well. So it was quite easy. It was a really good episode. That was one of my standout episodes, I think. There was one thing that really annoyed me about it, though. A bridge has just been destroyed by we don't know who. And minutes later, traffic a few streets away is normal. No one's running in fear. No one's went home. 
They haven't yeah. closed the place down. There's no lockdown in place. Nothing. And then when a speeding car comes careening through, just implying that the guy is someone important is enough to get the cops to back down. Yeah. When he's speeding away from the <laughs> supposed terrorist incident. Yeah. It feels like those two things were written without considering the other one. That's fair. I hadn't really thought about that, but the moment you said it, I'm like, oh, yeah. But yeah, it was one of my favourite episodes of the season still. <laughs> it's a bit like an Into Darkness after the vengeance has crashed in downtown San Francisco and then people are just going about their day as normal a few scenes later. I don't know. Maybe they're all used to it. The woman who turned out to be the time assassin did say yeah there are all these attacks happening to keep us down and maybe they happen very frequently and everyone's like oh it's fine it's just another one but like in the mcu there's a dead celestial sticking out of the ocean but that's just our lives now it's just the way it goes uh, oh my car got destroyed by the avengers for the fifth time in this six month period <laughs> yeah and insurance won't pay out because it was destroyed by a superhero not a super villain i only had super villain insurance <laughs> no <laughs> But it was a good episode. It was a good one for Laan for many reasons. The idea that Kirk was disarming. He was able to bring out her inner self, I suppose. He was able to get through her barriers. It's the common thing, isn't it? That Kirk is just innately charming and everyone just likes him when they meet him. Whether he's from an alternate reality or not, it's the same thing. But she just feels comfortable around him. I like how sassy she is with him as well. She'll make fun of him. and Yeah, they had a really fun rapport. And I was very surprised by how much I ended up really enjoying that pairing and them carrying the effect of that through the season when she meets the Kirk from her timeline and everything. Yeah. It was a really enjoyable episode where we get to focus in on one main character and then one quote unquote new character we've only seen once before and really get to develop a lot with them. Christina Chong got a lot this season. And oh, she did. really shone, yeah. I thought. She had a meaty role this season. She did last season, I think, as well. I really like Laan. She's one of my favourite characters, and it's nice to see her continuing to get a lot of good stuff to do. The one thing I can never understand, though, is why her family kept the Noonien Singh name. That makes no sense. Yeah, there's some stuff around the connection to Khan that I'm a bit like... Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sick on. of Khan, right? I'm so sick of modern <laughs> Star Trek writers riffing on the Wrath of Khan, just sick of it, because they can't seem to do anything else and they can't let it go. The thing is, nobody in Germany has a surname Hitler, right? Anybody that would have would have changed it mm-hmm. immediately. And it would be the same with Noonien Singh, you would imagine. Anybody that has that surname would just change it. People often just change their names when they get married or whatever as well. And it's been so many generations since Khan was actually alive that it's reasonable to assume that at some point someone was just like, I'm marrying this person called Maria Smith and I'm just going to change my name to Smith or whatever. But I suppose the alternative is that you would eventually find out that Laan is descended from Khan and that would be a big deal reveal thing. Yeah. I think this is better that they're upfront about it immediately, but also it doesn't make sense that her family would invite this stigma upon themselves by keeping the name. Yeah. She talks about it a lot and I believe it, but we don't see it necessarily in action. No, no one cares. Yeah. There's not been any frostiness from anyone on the crew no. with regards to it and stuff like that. And I'm not saying, oh, Laan has to be miserable and experience marginalization or anything, but it, it just feels odd because they do focus on it so much for her. I did ultimately like the way Khan was used in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow because of the date at first. I like probably a lot of people assume, oh, maybe Khan is messing around and doing something here that he's not supposed to be doing and that's what's going on and that we were going to see an adult Khan 
one. But then because they were trying to play around with canon a bit and they've moved forward the dates of the eugenics wars and all that kind of stuff. So we end up seeing a child Khan who's afraid. And I liked at the end of the episode when the temporal agent or whatever comes to see her and she's like, you sent me to protect my mass murdering ancestor. Screw you. (laughs) We protect a timeline, but we also love the drama. Yeah. (laughs) I love the drama. We have to have fun somewhere. You're the only person that could do this because it was fun for us. That's why. (laughs) And we filmed it and we were streaming it on Twitch the entire time. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone was laughing at you. I hope you know. Kirk's actually still alive. We just thought it would be funny to traumatize you. But that by itself clears up any canon inconsistencies that you could name, actually, because they've confirmed that this is a new timeline. And there are people that will be really annoyed by that. And I actually think it's fair enough if you can't deal with the fact that they have stated that this is a new timeline that's very similar to the old one, but there's these changes. And the Khan that Laan meets in this episode is not the same Khan that Kirk fights in Wrath of Khan, because that one left Earth in 1996. This one obviously didn't, because it wasn't even born at the time. Yeah. And there was all these great memes kicking about things like from Wrath of Khan where Kirk's trying to wind him up so that he'll chase him. And he's like, Khan, I rocked your granddaughter's world and stuff like that. (laughs) Stuff like that when you point that out. Yeah, this canon stuff's going to be hard to parse because Kirk has no idea who Khan is in Space Seed. Yeah. It's something that's been lost to history or it's just history that he doesn't know about. Well, he doesn't explicitly state that he knows about it in any of the other episodes he appears in, but he will know because everybody else seems to know. It seems to be very famous. So it's one of those things. I can see why people would be annoyed about it. Personally, it doesn't bother me, although it does make me wonder where canonically it all lines up, as in how does this new timeline affect the next generation that I've seen or anything else and those kind of things that annoy me. But also, like you said before in the spoiler-free section, it is very possible that this is going to evolve into the original series 2.0 because they're slowly introducing the cast from that show in different ways. We've already got Kirk, we've already got Ahura, we've already got Chapel. Now we have Scotty. Spock. That's all you need, actually. You don't need anybody else to do that. They will need to introduce Gary Mitchell at some point. Sulu. Well, Sulu is in Where No Man Has Gone Before. I did rewatch it. He is in it, but he's not Helmsman. He's in charge of another department. Okay. Also, in Uhura's early appearance, she wears a gold uniform in the original series. Don't know why that is. Uhura's going places. (laughs) Changes jobs, goes back. Yeah. (laughs) She has the Strange New Worlds arc where she tries something new and then finds out where she's supposed to be. She's like, I'm all right, actually. (laughs) I tried tap-ass for the first time and I decided it wasn't for me. I'm going back. She's still answering the phone, effectively, but she's wearing a gold uniform while doing it. Yeah. It was a show that was figuring itself out in its first season. The Federation isn't mentioned until way later. It's something like Space Central or whatever that they call it. It's like... God, that is such a terrible name. (laughs) That sounds like a company. That sounds like a brand or something. Space Central, the mall in space or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's nonsense. In the Corbinite maneuver, Kirk introduces himself as captain of the United Earthship Enterprise as well. So there we go. Wow, look at all these inconsistencies. Could it just be because TV production is a bit chaotic and things change all the time? Could it be that in the 60s they weren't worried about canon? Yeah. <laughs> they didn't care. They were just making up something up as they went. They were just making a show and they were like, well, whatever weird costumes they have on the lot, I guess we'll use those. Oh, a lizard suit? Sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, why not? So they got around some of the inconsistencies by having an alternate Kirk, whose corpse, by the way, gets left just on the floor. 
Yeah, because the agent lady does a thing that makes her corpse disappear so it's not contaminating the timeline, but there's just a future man lying dead on the floor <laughs> in that building. I wonder if the time agency scooped it up, you would imagine. Maybe. So. The time coroner came to collect it. <laughs> or maybe it'll show up at some point as a, oh yeah, we should, probably should have been more careful with that. Probably should have mopped up that blood, huh? Whoops. Oh well, that's something that happened. But yeah, it was a very emotionally effective ending for the Arn, where she calls the Kirk from her timeline with this really inane question. I actually rewatched the episode. I rewatched a bunch of the season two episodes so I could remember the earlier ones better. And so I rewatched that one like yesterday. And when La'an just hangs up the phone, quote unquote, and starts crying, I got a bit emotional. <laughs> On my second viewing, I think it's a really effective performance. Poor La'an struggling to connect to other people. When I wrote my review of that episode, I described it as a rom-com because it is. The episode is a rom-com. It's a meet cute between two people that become attracted to each other and ends in tragedy yeah well not all rom-coms do i guess but if you look at the episode throughout it does have a lot of the markers of it yeah definitely they even do the oh we're staying in the same hotel room but we have to sleep in different rooms but she goes in to look at him and then she leaves before she sees that he's looking at her oh i love it i love it they argue about hot dogs kirk doesn't have anything on his hot dog though. that really distressed me just raw dogging this hot dog <laughs> So this is bland hot dog with no mustard or ketchup or anything. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. And then we see the emotional effect of that episode staying with La'an throughout the whole season and culminating very well in the musical episode Subspace Rhapsody. I, as just a musical fan, kind of just wanted La'an and Uhura actually, partly because they had the best voices, partly because I felt like their musical arcs were like a bit incomplete. Just to get another song each, I felt like La'an kind of warranted a conclusive song and Uhura warranted more of an introductory song. She's not even really featured in Status Report as well, which is kind of odd considering they put her song in the trailer, like clearly considered it the standout musical number. And she does have one of the two standout voices among the cast. So yeah, they both got half of the musical protagonist arc each. On her rewatch, I was kind of like, okay, I guess I can kind of see why the scene between her and Kirk isn't a song because she was worried about having the emotion forced out of her. Yeah, the point was to be authentic on her own terms. Yeah, so I can kind of see that. But then on a musical narrative perspective, they keep saying that the music happens during moments of heightened emotion. So it would have been nice if maybe it started as a scene where she was talking to confess these things and then it kind of turned into maybe a softer reprise of her first song or a duet between her and Kirk or something like that um, would have been really nice. One thing I noticed on this rewatch is before her solo number, when it starts, she starts to sing and then she walks past people and she sings quieter when she walks past oh, them. Oh yeah, she does. <laughs> that was a nice little touch because she was the one that was just terrified of it. This could be a security risk. What if we sing about command codes or something? <laughs> There's so many little touches in the musical episode. For example, during Status Report, when La'an arrives on the bridge, Pike is just kind of intensely watching her. And then when she starts to sing, he just pulls this expression of absolute anguish because he's like, <laughs> oh God, well, if La'an's doing it, it's definitely not a prank. <laughs> I wish they'd stuck with that through line of Pike just being incredulous about the situation throughout. He sort of bought into it by the end. Oh, I like that he bought into it. It was nice. I would have quite liked it if his... Okay, to solve this, apparently we have to do this. 
Ahura, take it away. He was kind of saying that in the scene where Ahura was proposing it. But then I guess in the last song, Spock kind of takes over being the straight man to everybody else's enthusiasm, which is funny and works because it's Spock and him being like, I won't miss singing when they're all singing. I'll miss the singing. Or where he corrects the lyrics, where the lyrics are about their directive and he's like, actually not really, something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's like our prime directive. Not exactly. <laughs> like, it's nice. And there's also, I don't think it's explicit, but you could read that in the last moment where they do the last choreography of the music number, Spock is kind of off to the side looking at the computer, looking at the, what do they call it? The improbability variance or whatever it's called. And he's like looking at that and then looking at them, looking at that, and then goes to join in. So it could be read as Spock realizing that the last bit of improbability they needed was him <laughs> joining in. The techno babble in that episode was nonsense, even by Star Trek standards. Oh, love it. It looks like a zipper. Maybe it behaves like one. Yeah. No. Babe. <laughs> and obviously they were inspired by the Buffy episodes. Laan even referenced it. Are we going to poof it at bunnies or something? Like, nah, yeah. Nah, we'll, we'll just sing. It's the only thing that will happen here. I don't think the musical anomaly needed to stretch out across the entire Federation, though. It could have just been confined to the Enterprise and anything pretty nearby. I think since it did, it would have been nice to see more of other people singing on other ships. We got to see Battelle, which was nice. And then we got references to it. And obviously we got to see the Klingons right at the end. But I felt like the finale number could have done with maybe a short montage of seeing people on other ships joining in and singing. And you know, Uhura says more singing, more voices. And then they open the comms channel to the Klingons. Fantastic. I've wanted singing and dancing Klingons this entire episode. <laughs> you said it's the last thing anyone wants. It's the first thing I want, actually. But surely if you're going to open up comms to one ship, you're going to open up comms to all the ships if you need more voices, right? <laughs> but it was a neat touch that you see the ships all dancing in sync with each other. It was cool. My thought about Una's comment was you can't stop the Klingons from singing. It's what they do. Songs will be sung about this day. Yeah, I know we're going off track from our brief here because we're just talking about the musical episode now. But yeah, exactly. Klingon opera is a massive thing from Klingon culture. So them being like, oh, it's really dishonorable that you made us sing. I'm like, surely the Klingons would be like, this is great. I suppose the kind of music that we're making them sing is the problem. Maybe. Yeah, maybe that's what they meant. We didn't want to sing K-pop, actually. <laughs> Although I don't know how you get K-pop from the Great American Songbook that was transmitted into the Rift. Me neither. But it was pretty funny. Yeah, actually that episode is the one that definitely sold me on Paul Wesley's Kirk. I thought he was good in the sixth episode, but he wasn't quite there yet, but there was mannerisms. You didn't like him in Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow? Well, that's not real Kirk. Oh, I see. Okay, you're making that separation. All right. He's deliberately playing a bit differently. And then last yeah. season he was deliberately playing a bit differently as well. Mm -hmm. I actually heard an interview with him on Michael Rosenbaum's podcast where he talked about that. He's like, you haven't seen real Kirk yet. It was recorded before. Season two aired. Yeah. So that's what he was talking about. That's interesting, actually. In the sixth episode, he was playing Prime Kirk, let's call him that. But yeah. he wasn't quite there yet. There were some elements of his performance that I found a bit familiar, but he wasn't quite there. But in the musical episode, I was like, there he is. Just the way he would look at people or the way he would conduct himself. He has the swagger. Yeah. I think Paul Wesley's really good. And I also think it must be such an interesting challenge for an actor to approach a role that way where it's like okay the first two times i get to occupy this role i'm not playing this character as they normally <laughs> are but you don't have the foundation of having played the character as they are to deviate from it that's quite interesting yeah it's good casting as well he is playing kirk in his 20s and he's 40 so that's interesting yeah good for him <laughs> if you can pull it off good for him <laughs> although when you look at him you think you're not 25 or however old you're supposed to be 
yeah, TV has very much warped our perception of ages. I once again bring up Glee, where <laughs> you have all these like 34-year-olds being like, I'm just a simple sophomore in high school. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> or Riverdale again. Yeah, and Riverdale. And oh God, what's a Never Have I Ever, a show I really love. But there's one character in particular where it's like, okay, this guy was cast when he was 28. A lot of the other people were cast when they were like 19 to 21. <laughs> so they can kind of pull off being a high schooler more. But this guy has crow's feet coming in and stuff like that. <laughs> and it's not that he's a bad actor. It's just you look at him and you're like, sir, why are you in this high school hitting on this high school girl? Please leave. <laughs> <laughs> Scotty looks age appropriate for where he should be. I guess they couldn't find an actor that would have the confidence that Kirk is supposed to have at that age while also just being that age. Mm-hmm. I like Paul Wesley's Kirk and when he finally settled into the role in the ninth episode, I'm like, I really want to see more. I'd like them to lighten his hair slightly though. Kirk's blonder than that. <laughs> I don't really mind his hair. Chris Pine is too blonde. <laughs> Everyone must have the same hair as William Shatner. Okay. <laughs> but I suppose he matches his brother a bit more. That's true. That's another thing I wanted from the musical episode I felt was missing was a song between Sam and Jim. Because the tension there was so built up. This should release in a musical number. If you're following the rules of musicals, which they stated they were in canon, (laughs) then that tension should release with a musical number. I thought the conceit worked. It was the same as the Buffy conceit. We're being forced to sing our truths. So basically it allows us to info dump a lot of the secrets that have been hanging around the background all season. And it can feel natural because the scenario allows for it rather than it just being an episode with a lot of people confessing stuff for no reason. So it works in that regard. And it's also showing a knowledge of the musical genre and stuff like that, which is nice. Yeah, although I don't think the level of secrecy was as bad as it is in something like Buffy. I don't think there's as many pinch points of tension in there. Well, you have Chapel's song where she sings about being so happy that she's leaving. Spock's song being the ex, I thought, was a little bit pathetic from Spot. <laughs> His song grew on me, actually. The first time I listened to it, I was like, oh, it's all right. No, I, I didn't mind the song, but I mean the sentiment of the song. I felt like Spock should not be this mopey. I'm sorry, we just talked about how Spock is miserable all the time. He's so miserable. And now he's more in touch with his emotions. I mean, it's in keeping with the interpretation of him in this show, but I'm thinking, no, have him sing about something else. Can't he sing about <laughs> loving science or something? But he is, kind of, because he's viewing his relationship through the lens of mathematical language and stuff. Some kind of equation. Yeah, it was was strange. I quite liked it. That song grew on me the more I listened to it. And I also like how it's kind of a mirror of Chapel's song with the melody as well as the lyrics and the subject matter, how they kind of foil one another. I think it's quite well done. Yeah. And the musical episode, it was kind of both La'an and Ahura's episode as well in terms Mm of the emotional payoffs and Laanne's conversation with Kirk where Carol Marcus is brought up, I found was quite interesting. It does match up timeline wise because when Kirk meets David in Wrath of Khan, he's like 25, 30, something like that. So he would be born around about this time. But it means that Kirk's flying around the galaxy during the original series, just never thinking about his son. Deadbeat dad, Jim Kirk. (laughs) But it is talked about in Wrath of Khan where it was a choice that they made together, as in she wanted him in her life and... That was it. They both chose for him to stay away because that's what she wanted. And I imagine we'll see that conversation next season because apparently we need to give Kirk more time in the show that's not about him. Yeah. I think it worked. And I like Paul Wesley in the cast, so I don't get too annoyed by the fact that he's taking screen time from other people that probably should have more screen time. <laughs> I'll take us. <laughs> 
please give her one episode, I beg. <laughs> just one, yeah. One full episode. One that's not about being a pilot. Yeah. At least they didn't give Kirk a musical number by himself, I suppose. He was shadowing, that's what he was supposed to do. Yeah. And I actually, I quite liked his song with Una. It was definitely an interesting and odd choice for the initial song after the opening number to be between Una and Kirk. And I liked that they call back to Una's love of, oh my god. Gilbert and Sullivan. Gilbert and Sullivan musicals. God, my brain. Have you seen the short trick that that's referenced? Yeah, and they also mention it in Ad Astra Per Aspera when Spock is on the stand giving a character witness kind of thing. He's like, she was hiding something. A love of Gilbert and Sullivan musicals. <laughs> <laughs> I like that short trick. Spock's first day on the Enterprise and he gets stuck in the lift. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good one, that one. And Una's song was very Gilbert and Sullivan-esque as well. Yeah. She got two songs, which is easy to forget because one of them is very forgettable, but the duet with Kirk is nice. It's not a standout, but it's fun and cute. And then the one she sings at La'an, every musical needs a boring number, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's not Rebecca Romaine's fault. (laughs) She's fine. (laughs) It's her singing about not keeping yourself closed off. And she sings about, I did keep myself closed off and that was a mistake. It's another problem with the serialization. Una sings two songs about the fact that she's changed the way that she does things, but we never saw the old way that she does things. She talks about, I've changed my command style to be more friendly with the crew. And I'm just thinking, we never saw you not friendly with the crew. I guess we did in season one. I don't think that this is her being wildly unfriendly with the crew, but there was the episode in season one where her and La'an stay behind when everyone else goes off on shore leave and yeah. do the Enterprise bingo. And the setup of that is that they are where fun goes to die and all yeah. that stuff. But she's never cruel or mean to her crew. She's just no. not a very sociable, outgoing person at the start of the show. And she does the bad cop thing with the, oh, the yeah. crewmen that try to go outside and stuff. But But that's very much framed as they're kind of having a laugh with it. And it's not what she would usually do. Yeah, but we've never seen her in command and being very no-nonsense, for example. And I mean, the song worked fine, but I feel like for that arc to be believable, we'd need to see her as the no-nonsense commander and then deciding, I don't want to be the no-nonsense commander anymore. I want to be like Pike is. I want to be everybody's friend. Yeah, obviously she was keeping the secret, because the song is called Keeping Secrets, of her Illyrian heritage and all that stuff. And she had to hide that at the time. Yeah, rule number one of writing, show don't tell. You've just told us this, you haven't really showed us it. Yeah, yeah. More episodes for more time with the characters, please. I just want more Strange New Worlds. It's just being greedy. I just like Strange New Worlds and I want more of it. But her forgettable song, as you put it, is more about La'an anyway. It's more about encouraging her to find that equilibrium within herself to be more open. And she decides at the end of the episode, I'm going to give that a try. And then we don't get to see that because the finale is the next one. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Laan, you have to go back to the Gorn. Just when you feel like you might be ready to put yourself out there a bit, the Gorn come back. Yeah, I'm so sick of these bloody Gorn. We'll get into it. Well, we're talking about Laan now, so I guess we could. I'm so sick of these Gorn. Yeah, although the Gorn aren't really connected to her in the finale at all. She's there. That's true. Yeah, she's just sort of there. It's not about her. But yeah, her connection to Kirk is really good. And I was actually surprised when he said, I'm in a relationship, but sometimes I'm not. And this is one of the times where I am. I'm in an on-again, off-again relationship with a woman who's pregnant with my baby. Um, are you sure that's on-again, off-again? Are you all right? Well, that's why it's on-again, right? Yeah. (laughs) Basically, what it is, is they hook up whenever he's on Starbase 1. Yeah. And whoops, they didn't use protection. (laughs) (laughs) Then it ends when he leaves, inevitably. Yeah. It sort of backs up Pike's relationship issue. 
The idea mm. of Kirk and Carol can't be because he's in Starfleet and he's got to leave all the time and she won't. Yeah, yeah. And you see that a lot. That's Chapel's thing in the first season. And then that's also one of Spock's issues with T'Pring as well. And you see it across series. It's cool to see it explored with lots of very different characters as well. Because usually it's one character who has that, but in this it's multiple people dealing with it in different ways. If you look at a mock time, they introduce the fact that Spock has a wife and the objective of that episode is to play with that for a bit and then get rid of that marriage so it doesn't come up again because Spock needs to stay on the Enterprise. Yeah. (laughs) That happens a lot with these things. You've got this thing that will drag you away from the ship. We're going to play with it for an episode and then we'll dissolve it so that it doesn't become a problem again. Yeah. You could just not give them a thing that will drag them away from the ship. You need an idea for an episode, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) You just kind of know it's not going to stick. Yeah. Which is why it surprised me that T'Pring was even in this show initially. Because I feel like it's something they could have just not mentioned and it would have been fine. But they wanted to show Spock half naked in the first episode. I mean, you could find other reasons <laughs> to do that. <laughs> it's one of the things. But Kirk and Laan, before he told her about Carol, I felt like he was pursuing something with her. Just the way it was, oh, can we get to work together again? That's great. And then he just keeps standing close to her and stuff like that. This is classic Kirk. Yeah, the show obviously wanted us to think that. When you look back on it, you are like, oh, Kirk, were you just trying to like get a little bit before you're tied down by a kid? <laughs> I like that the La'an story, because it is mainly her storyline, concludes with her and Kirk not getting together, but her having learned that she can try to open up emotionally because then it brings the focus back around to being on her rather than just pairing her up with arguably one of the most famous men in Star Trek. And then it all becomes about Kirk. It was a really good arc for Lan. I was really pleasantly surprised how much I bought into their chemistry. I do think they have really good chemistry together, but I'm also fine with them not ending up together. Yeah, I thought that was the more complicated choice. I'm glad that was the case. And I didn't feel like Kirk was lecherous about it as well. That's a tough line to walk because one of the reputations that Kirk has as a character is the fact that he's a womanizer. And I think it's actually kind of an unfair reputation. The way that some people assume Kirk is portrayed in the original series is effectively Zap Brannigan from Futurama. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is quite an exaggeration. But if you watch the original series, he's not like that. He's a mature, confident, capable commander. There are women that he hooks up with throughout the show, but it's not all he does. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a flanderization, partly as a result of fandom tendencies, partly from parodies like Zap Brannigan and then stuff like, I guess, the J.J. Abrams movies kind of turned him into a little bit more of that. Yeah, his behaviour when he meets Ahura in the O9 movie is very much that, isn't it? He's yeah inappropriately hitting on her in a bar. And I feel like they referenced it this season as well when Kirk and Ahura meet. Yeah. She's like, I'm not in the mood to be hit on. And he's like, hey, you sat next to me. I promise I'm not hitting on you. <laughs> And then she punches him in the face. I was here first. I'm just saying. (laughs) I liked the way that he befriended Ahura and gave her advice on how to cope with death. We're going to face this every day in our careers and you can either face it or let it consume you and you're letting it consume you right now and that's not good. And she is someone who has faced death before because of her experience with losing her family. And she was very young when that happened. So it's reasonable to believe that even though she thinks she's sorted through her grief and moved on, that she probably actually hasn't fully done that because she was so young. So it's interesting to see. The point is she's been ignoring it. Yeah, yeah. And she's doing the same with Hammer as well. Yeah, she has a pattern that she keeps doing and is stuck in, which is a very normal thing to 
happen inadvertently from those kind of things. It's interesting that advice comes from Kirk, because the thing in Wrath of Khan was you never actually have faced death. You've never dealt with it properly because you've cheated okay. your way out of it and stuff. But also this comes after he's encountered that weird cloud creature that kills the crew of the Farragut. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's different interpretations of him throughout his life. But the fact that he gives that advice, it's cool. They aren't that friendly in the original series though. So again, that's something that they're playing with a bit. Yeah, and I actually, I really like that Uhura in particular has a rapport with Spock and a rapport with Kirk independently of the other one. She has her own focused relationships with each of them, considering that, as we said, Uhura wasn't a very big or nuanced character in the original series. She didn't get explored a lot. It's nice to see Kirk being her friend as opposed to being Kirk is the central figure and she's on the periphery of him. He's on the periphery of her. It's kind of interesting to see. Yeah. The funniest thing in that episode is how many people that Kirk shakes hands with. He's just going around the ship shaking hands with everybody. You could do a montage. I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) And it's the first time in canon in this new timeline as well, that you meet Spock. And I like how understated it was. They just, join us, shakes hands. Yeah, it was nice. It was a tiny little bit of, oh, look at the nostalgia, but it felt earned and it wasn't dramatic close-up. <laughs> it was just a nice, quiet moment. Yeah, it was good. Well, the Kirk is a chess savant is a bit of a weird character choice. Is that not a carryover? Kind of. In the pilot that he's in, where no man has gone before, he is playing chess with Spock. And he says oh. to him, has anyone ever told you you play a very irritating game of chess? But they seem to have just, he's really good at chess, apparently, at every timeline, because that's how he makes money. I wonder where he got the seed money for the first game of chess. Begging, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's not important. <laughs> and Ahura's role of keeping others connected while being on the outside of it, that was interesting. Although that was another, I accept my place as doing that while not being in any of these relationships. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's just a symptom of we want all these characters to end up on the Enterprise. They have to end up on the Enterprise. (laughs) Yeah, but she opens the musical by creating connections with the communications and then closes the episode doing the same thing. Yeah. So that's another. I quite like my place on the ship now. Yeah, yeah. This thing that was monotonous to me before, now I'm okay with it. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of neat when the episode opened and I'd recently watched all of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel again and I was like, oh, she's running the phone lines at B. Altman's. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was kind of cool to see her like an old-fashioned phone operator. That must be exhausting. That just looked really busy. Yeah. Just funneling communications everywhere and she has everybody bothering her as well. Has my message come in yet? Leave me alone. <laughs> I don't know. Check your email later. <laughs> but yeah, her sort of through line of her experiences with grief. I know, like you've said, obviously it's kind of not there for the first six episodes until she has a focus episode. But in terms of what is there, I think it works really well, especially connecting to who she was, what we learned about her in season one, losing her family. And I fully believe, like I said, that someone who lost their family really young and didn't fully process it and then just kind of swept themselves up in work would absolutely just repeat the same pattern again when they lose somebody else and just not even realise what they're doing. And I think that's really interesting route to take her. And she analyzes that through her song, I suppose. One of the lines in the song is about her finding her place. She says, I found my place. So she accepts that the Enterprise is for the moment where she's supposed to be. Which she wasn't sure at the start of season one. Yeah. There's still work to do there. She needs to find a proper place for herself as in with actual friends. and Yeah. 
And we do see her hanging out with Ortega and Chapel and in those old scientists. She gets forced to do it. She gets forced to go to the bar. And in the 10 seconds she is not working, it helps her. The solution presents itself. Yeah. I also just got her song in the musical episode. Like I said, clearly they knew it was the standout song of the episode. That song and Status Report have been on repeat <laughs> for a lot for me. What a voice she has. It's really oh, good. Yeah. Well, she's a Broadway actress, isn't she? Yeah, I wasn't sure if she had a musical theatre background or just a singing background. She's been on Broadway for sure. Okay. Yeah, it was very obvious the moment her and La'an started singing. There are the trained singers right there. There they are. Christina Chong has released music fairly recently. Mm -hmm. I listened to it. It's not to my taste. It wasn't for me, but she has done it. (laughs) And she also got her start in musical theatre, she said in an interview. And Ethan Peck's just good at everything, apparently. He's one of those annoying people. (laughs) Yeah, he was pretty good. I don't know if he's trained or anything. He must have some training. He wasn't at La'an and Uhura levels, but he was definitely a step above, say, Anson Mount, with carrying a tune and (laughs) stuff like that. He didn't quite sing, but he was humming in Children of the Comet to activate Mm -hmm. the thing in in the Comet. He was helping with that, harmonise. Yeah. I imagine he must have some background in it, even if it's limited. If you've been to drama school, a classical drama school, the tendency would be that you would learn an amount of singing, just enough to be able to do it if it was required in a role. You don't have to necessarily be an incredible singer, but in drama school, you will learn how to sing. So if he's been to drama school, he would have. But I don't know if he has. I thought Anson Mount was fine. He didn't have too much to do, really. But and it worked because his song was supposed to be a bit of a jokey song anyway. And when he falls to his knees and he's like got his arms in the air and that's when Laan's like, all right, that's enough. <laughs> he has that big uh, declaration during the finale as well. Yeah, yeah, he does. Where he admits to the crew he's proud to be their captain. But that's not a truth that he keeps hidden, is it? We all no, you tell us that every day. Yeah, you're the most encouraging person ever, yeah. Yeah, you're like so overwhelmingly supported you cook personalised omelettes for people, <laughs> come on. <laughs> One thing I want to see next season is Pike having to discipline someone. Mm. Someone does something wrong and he has to put his foot down. Which could have come up this season. It could have. In Under the Cloak of War, I am so baffled by this episode. Before we get onto that, though, I will say something I want from Pike in a future season is I want an equivalent of the musical episode vibe where it's someone is trying to make a cooking show and they're like, we want a famous Starfleet (laughs) captain who's a great chef to be the host of this show. And he's forced to be on this cooking show. I want that. Yeah, that would work. He kind of disciplines Boimler, not quite though. He's just more exasperated with him. Yeah, he sort of just treats him like a kid who's making mistakes, which, fair, he kind of is. Which pretty much is, yeah. A toddler wrecking all the furniture or whatever he says. Boimler's rambling away and he's like, you're still doing it. I told you to stop. You're <laughs> still doing it. But he never really gets annoyed at anybody. So that's something I would like to see. You kind of get to see him do it with Burnham at the start of season two of Discovery. Burnham says that won't work and he raises his voice for a second. But that's also because that's pre-Strange New Worlds and that's not his usual ship it's kind of hard to gauge how he would behave with a member of like if Ortegas did something that was reprehensible or something like that yeah something to do next season is someone and it can be one of our main cast as well someone that should know better does something really wrong and he has to put his foot down he has to lay down the law yeah that would be interesting to see definitely I'd like to see that one time it could have happened as you've alluded to Mbenga (laughs) 
we'll bring Chapel in on this as well, but it's mostly the embedded. Yeah. The PTSD thing. I think the second instance of it was way better than the first instance. I wasn't a huge fan of the first episode of the season with the super soldier serum stuff. <laughs> that is what it is, isn't it? It annoyed me because there was no clear consequence to taking it. They just had strength for a bit and then it faded. Yeah. There was no come down. Although in Under the Cloak of War, they say that it's dangerous to use it a lot. But they don't show us. <laughs> well, they don't show you. Yeah. So it, it's kind of moot. Basically, they just wanted an excuse for Mbenga and Chapel to beat up a bunch of Klingons in a corridor. Yeah. Which was a cool scene. The first episode to me, it was fine. I think the first time I watched it, I enjoyed it more than the second time because the first time it was like new strange new world <laughs> one of my favorite shows is back yeah. yay and then i was quite shocked to see brown face klingons back again <laughs> i was annoyed that the false flag starfleet ship was called a crossfield class and it looked nothing like discovery it does discovery saucer but nothing else discovery is a crossfield class okay i'm one of the fake star trek fans who doesn't really care about the ships yeah. that much <laughs> it's not a fake fan they all look the same to me no they don't look the same but you know what i mean i don't really care about the differentiation that sequence was just weird anyway because the klingons could see the ship but they somehow couldn't see the enterprise that was right behind it mm. and then there was no questions about where all the weapons that were being fired behind this ship that's just appeared were going either when they were trying to shoot the enterprise yeah it was kind of odd sequence was just weird. The whole episode, as a season premiere as well, I felt like it was pretty lacking. I thought it was interesting to, for the season premiere, take us away from Pike and Una, which you would expect the trial episode or the build-up to the trial to be the opener, and to kind of give us a different story. They wanted an action sequence in their first episode, really. I think that's what it was. Yeah, which is fair enough. You want to grip people. We can't open on a court case. That'll be boring. Yeah, I love Ad Astra Paraspera. It's Same. one of my standout episodes, but I don't think it's a strong season opener. No. I don't know what the first episode could have done to be a stronger opener. No, I don't know. And when it comes to the Klingons, I understand they are a bit saddled with the point in Star Trek history that they're at. The Klingons have to be adversarial. Like we were talking about earlier with Spock, and we also mentioned Klingons then, there's just a lot of issues related to Klingons that they've never really cleaned up and obviously discovery changed the design of the klingons and people threw a hissy fit about it i think there were still some issues with that design on a cultural level but i do think that just returning to the previous design and casting white actors and browning them up to play klingons who are extremely heavily racially coded i was quite shocked to see that in a show in 2023 i was like oh i thought we'd at least learned that that was a bad thing but i guess not and that's just a very basic level thing we talked about the under the cloak of war episode which kind of continued the trend of issues with portraying klingons where they kind of leaned into this idea of ra being basically like a pick me klingon in order to kind of bolster himself up and get all these roles and stuff as an ambassador peace negotiator and they leaned super heavy into stuff like, oh yeah, we Klingons, we have a high pain tolerance. And him admonishing his own society and being like, yeah, all Klingons are barbaric and warlike and I hate my own culture. And it's just like, oh guys, <laughs> this is really not doing what you think it's doing. And just because you cast a black guy in this role really doesn't help necessarily. I found Ra interesting for a few reasons, actually, because effectively Under the Cloak of War is a sequel to the first episode of the season, which sets up mm -hmm. that 
in Benga and Chapel were in the war and it was really nasty for them. And it was a weird season opener for other reasons as well. You had La'Anne coming back. She made this big deal about, I'm leaving the Enterprise to help Ariana find her family. And then first episode of the season, found them coming back. Episode one. (laughs) Oh, wait, they're sick. Oh, they're healed now. Sweet, coming back. (laughs) Yeah. I discovered this plot that was looking to reignite the entire Federation Klingon war while I was looking for this little girl's family. But I'll solve that while I'm here as well. (laughs) Why not? Yeah. Barn is cool and badass, but come on. And Spock's going to get really drunk with them and that'll be a fun little thing that you can do, I suppose. Yeah, it's a fun through line that Spock is the one they send to negotiate with Klingons because he can handle his blood wine. (laughs) Yeah, and we're stealing the Enterprise. How many times has the Enterprise been stolen, I wonder? Oh, it's like every week. Yeah, happens all the time. And April was fine with it because they didn't want to be dealing with the Gorn and the Klingons at the same time. But I would have actually quite liked it if April had said to Spock, I can't tell you not to take the Enterprise. Wink, wink. Wink, wink, yeah. But if someone just so happened to turn off the docking clamps and you accidentally went there, then we wouldn't be able to do Yeah, I feel like that would have been stronger and also nice to see April not just being, I'm a stickler for the rules and you have to do what I say. I'm an admiral and everyone thinks I should be white. Because a drawing of me was white in an animated show. Is that it? Is that the only other time he appeared? That's right, yeah. April appeared in an episode of the animated series and he was white in that episode. Oh my god. Wow, I really assumed he appeared in the original series and people were upset about something a bit more substantial, which would still be silly, to be clear, but (laughs) it's like even sillier that it's just a drawing. (laughs) Well, if you count the animated series as canon, he did appear in the original series. (laughs) The animated series is dubious in its canonicity as it is. It's not something I'd ever be worried about. (laughs) (laughs) I would quite like to see an April flashback of him in Command of the Enterprise, see what that looks like. Yeah, that'd be cool. Or maybe if there's another time travel episode, <laughs> we go back to when he was in charge of the Enterprise. Yeah, or it's a follow-up to one of his missions and you get flashback to the original mission or something. Yeah, I would quite like to see April get in on the action a little bit. Yeah. I know admirals are supposed to be a little bit distanced and all that stuff. First Officer Pike under April would be quite fun. Yeah, it would be cool to see. Just once. But under the cloak of war, the thing I liked about Rai is I was never sure about his intentions because... I think Robert Wisdom did a great job of playing. He seems sincere enough. He reminded me of Mark Alimo playing Galdukat, as in, I want to believe mm-hmm. this guy. I don't know why, but I just want to believe him. There's something about him that makes me just want to believe him. Yeah. There's just something in the back of my mind being like, but don't. I know Dukat is lying every time he opens his mouth, but I can't help but want to believe the guy. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he just has that magnetism, I guess. I don't think Ra was quite like that, but he certainly seems sincere about wanting to create peace. Yeah, I read it as he built this lie up around him and maybe part of him did genuinely believe it and believe that he could escape the things he did during the Klingon War. And it coloured his motivation a lot because he wasn't being honest about the reasons we wanted to be peaceful. He wanted to make up for this massacre he never actually did, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. It was an interesting premise. Yeah. I don't know if the execution was... For me, the execution didn't work, basically, on several levels. Narratively, it didn't quite match up because it took so long for them to reveal that he was full of crap about it. It isn't until just before he's killed, funnily enough, that Mbenga admits that he's the butcher of Jagal, not him, mm-hmm. for one thing. And I had issues with that ending as well, because I'm not quite clear on what actually happened. It does look like that Ra is reaching out to Mbenga peacefully, possibly a bit too forcefully, 
Mbenga stabs him, Chapel sees it, and then lies about it. Yeah, the ending I definitely have some issues with. And yeah, like you say, the pacing of the reveal of information doesn't quite work. And then as well, before we get into discussing the ending more, I also just don't buy the fact that Starfleet in general, but especially Pike specifically, would be like, okay, we've got this Klingon ambassador coming onto the ship. He's a war veteran from this place where we know some of our officers fought and had a traumatic time. And so we're going to force those individuals to be in a room with him and force them to relive those experiences. I just don't believe that Pike would make Mbenga and Chapel do that. Maybe if he didn't realise how bad it was or that they were there, maybe, but we know that he knows. So it just doesn't work for me. He did give them the option to not attend the dinner. It kind of read as, I guess you could not, but Starfleet really needs it kind of thing. And that's where I'm like, I don't know if I believe that Starfleet would order veterans of a war (laughs) to go hang out with a general who was massacring their people during the war. It just, I don't, buy it. (laughs) Although in a way I can believe that because that's a decision made by people that didn't fight in the war as well. They understand in theory what people went through, but in practice they don't understand the lingering effects it'll have had. And you see a slight example of that in the way Pike is. They have all these conversations about how Pike cannot understand what Mbenga's been through because he hasn't fought in the war. It was established that the Enterprise was deliberately kept out of the war. So Mm -hmm. he didn't experience it. And you have this clear divide on the ship between people that fought in the war and those that didn't. And one side cannot understand where the other side is coming from. The people that didn't fight in the war, they're all about, yeah, we should put our differences aside and live peacefully. That's what the Federation's all about. And the people that fought in the war say, we can understand that in theory, but in practice, whenever I look at a Klingon, I'm just filled with irrational anger because of what I experienced. And it's really interesting to get these ideas that just cannot meet in the middle at this point. And Star Trek VI, which you, you haven't seen, but that's about peace with the Klingons as well. And the Klingon Chancellor in that film says to Kirk, if there is to be this brave new world, our generation is going to have the hardest time living in it. And that's what's happening in Strange New Worlds. They're the generation that are finding it difficult to consider peace with the Klingons. Yeah. Or at least some of them are. Anybody that fought in the war can't imagine being peaceful with them because they've seen that ugly side of it. And they just can't parse that. I think that's great as a perspective thing because it would have been so easy for them to just forget the Klingon war ever happened, even though it was a major thing in Discovery. And one thing the flashbacks do really well is show you an example of what was going on during that war, because we only saw it from Discovery's perspective. I thought the flashback scenes were actually the most effective part of that episode. They really delivered on the trauma and horrors of being in a war and interesting for it to also be from the perspective of a medical person rather than a soldier as well. And there was a lot of really effective sound design and visuals and performances, of course. Yeah, and one thing I think that Strange New Worlds does really well is actually challenge Federation values and tries to see if they hold up. Something Deep Space Nine did really well as well. As in, do these work in practice when the situation isn't ideal? And the answer is a complicated one sometimes, but for some people, no. And Una acknowledges that, that yeah, in theory... I understand your point about everyone deserves a second chance. We're no longer at war. We should work towards peace. But Una says, no, everybody's on their own journey on this. It's too soon. And we have to end this journey as quickly as possible because it's just uncomfortable for half the crew. See, that's what I mean. At that point, does Pike not? Like, I agree with you that I I think there's an interesting perspective on the people high up who didn't have to have direct interaction with the 
traumatic event just don't understand. But we know Pike so well as an empathetic character that there's aspects of that I found a little bit difficult to buy into. Yeah, I think narratively they were trying to force the Pike doesn't understand what Benga's going through thing and it wasn't handled perfectly, but I, I like the idea. It's the theory versus practice thing. Yeah, exactly. And I do like that they're treating it realistically because if we went through a war that was like that, you're talking about, well, there's people still alive that experienced the Second World War. I imagine it took a lot of them a very long time to imagine the idea of just being friends with a German after that. So there will be real world examples where people will be able to relate to that but again, Pike is Mr. Federation, isn't he? He's the one that believes that everything has a peaceful resolution. You shouldn't hate anybody. We should all be friends. And then the next week he says, the Gorn are monsters and I won't hear anything different. Ah, uh, we'll get to the Gorn. But that's an interesting thing because you have a similar conversation between April and Pike in the next episode where April says, maybe there's a way we can understand them and be peaceful. And Pike says, nope, monsters. And he's like, no. We're going to murder their children on site. Yeah, we're going to shoot their children in the street. That's what we're doing now. Oh my God. <laughs> but they could have followed that up where Pike has a conversation with Mbenga in that episode and says, the Garner monsters. And it's, well, it wasn't last week where you were trying to tell me to get along with the Klingons. Isn't this a bit similar? Yeah. I haven't gone and checked what the writing and directing credits are. I know that it does tend to be that different people will write and direct different episodes, but maybe with a showrunner through line. They used to hire continuity people for these kinds of things. Yeah. It just definitely feels like they don't really know what they want to do with representing this issue of are this entire race of people all mindless monsters with either the Klingons or the Gorn. Like you're saying, it's contradictory. And even with the Klingons, they were trying to do something there. They, I don't think they succeeded, but they're still doing so many things wrong. They're still ultimately sending this message, which is steeped in these racist ideas of the bioessentialist qualities of your personality and physicality, all are tied to your race and all that stuff. And then they go in really hard with the Gorn to the point where, like we said, the Gorn are such mindless monsters, as the show tells us, that we can shoot their children on sight. I see people saying, oh, but they're being really clever because they're trying to dissect what it's like to realise that they're actually more complicated than that because they have a spacesuit in this one episode and da 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 da. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but are we not fully beyond that as a narrative now? Especially portrayed so simplistically and so haphazardly. The dichotomy that I see is the Gorn are a species within Star Trek's world that have spaceships. Therefore, they are a society of beings that are intelligent and sentient and capable of warp travel and scientific advancement and all that kind of thing. But the show wants to treat them like horror movie monsters that just run down the corridor and murder people. Xenomorphs, yeah. Yeah, they literally make so many visual references to Alien. And you can't do both those things with the same group of people in Star Trek because inherently they have to be an advanced species that would be not just mindless monsters. And it feels really, really clumsy to me. And we've had two seasons three encounters with the Gorn across those two seasons, and they still haven't done the thing that they did in Arena, the original series episode, in one episode. Yeah. Which ends with Kirk showing mercy to the Gorn captain and understanding that it's a sentient being that he doesn't have to kill. And in that episode as well, the Enterprise crew wake up to the fact that, oh, our colony was in their space and that's why they attacked us. 
maybe it was a bit extreme what they did, but we shouldn't have been there. And it actually feels like the season finale of this season is doing something really similar because it opens with the attack on a Federation colony. So it's effectively arena again. And definitely not done as well. I found the finale to be quite a letdown and I know you did too because you told me already. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't like the finale that much. We can circle back to that. Let's talk a bit more about the ending of under the cloak of war. Yes, Mbenga, my boy. The whole thing just confused me, and I think it could have been fixed pretty easily if the scene had been cut in such a way that Chapel enters and it's not clear what she saw. It's not clear who started the fight. To me, it's clear that Mbenga was the one that was the aggressor. Yeah. And then Chapel lied about it. It's clearly something that will eventually come back because it can't just be dismissed like that. Pike says, there's likely to be an inquiry, but don't worry about it. And then Mbenga responds in such a way that suggests that he was in the right there, as in, I'm glad he's dead. And Pike even encourages him to be honest. And he still doubles down on this righteous belief he has that Ra deserved to die. And it may not have been my fault, but I'm glad he's dead. It looks to me like it was your fault. It looks to me that he was trying to get through to you in some way and you stabbed him. Yeah. So I felt the ending was really jarring and maybe haphazardly shot. It didn't have great conveyance visually. I also just generally take issue with the idea that this important man, this ambassador dies on their ship and they just ask Chapel, well, what happened? And she's like, yeah, no, it wasn't Mbenga's fault. And they're just like, oh, okay. I kind of don't buy that. Cameras in sickbay, surely. I was going to say, do you not have cameras on your Federation starship in the communist utopia future? (laughs) I felt like the episode did handle showing the effects of trauma and PTSD really well. I don't know, maybe this is because Mbenga is probably my favourite character in the show overall. It felt like a bit of a leap for Mbenga to just be fine with lying about the circumstances around him having killed someone and just staying on the ship. It feels jarring for him as a character. It feels jarring that they would buy it. And with regards to Ra, I do think the episode showed moments where you could interpret it as him trying to antagonize Mbenga, but it also could be from Mbenga's perspective, every slight movement feels more like it could be an assault. So when Mbenga's walking out of Pike's quarters and Ra kind of grabs him by the shoulder and is like, oh, I want to do judo with you. And him grabbing him by the shoulder and the way that they're shooting it and presenting it feels almost violent. And it's maybe up to interpretation whether that's Mbenga's perspective on it or whether that's actually what he's doing. Whether Mbenga is reading into these things or whether Ra is trying to antagonize him in that moment and in their sparring session and then in the medical bay as well. That remaining ambiguous is a good thing. I quite like the idea that, well, it's the Goldacart thing. Well, with him, we knew he was full of crap, but you wanted to believe him. Whereas they could have just had Ra act like that the whole episode. And it's down to the audience's interpretation of his behaviour to decide whether he is genuine or not. And then you have these conflicting perspectives from the characters that are affected. So, for example, Spock wants to discuss the art of war with them and stuff like that. You have Ahura wanting to speak Klingon with an actual Klingon who's not trying to kill her. And then you have Mbenga and Chapel, and to a lesser extent Ortega's giving him a hard time about everything. And you have this powder keg of emotion flying around and then it's left to the viewer to figure out where they stand on the issue. Maybe they should just sing about it. I don't know. 
Maybe. Yeah, you have this really dark PTSD episode, and then the next episode has Mbenga skipping into the turbo <laughs> lift while singing a closing number. Well, the episode before that is the Lower Decks crossover episode, so they were really playing fast and loose with tone. Oh yeah, tonally all over the place. Sandwiched between the two funny ones. Yeah. <laughs> But I think they should have just left it ambiguous and let the audience make up their mind as to what they thought of it. That ending, I just don't get it. Yeah. When I finished that episode, both me and my partner were like, is that seriously? They're going to just have an episode where Mbengo murders a guy and then Chapel lies about it and everything's fine. It felt very jarring. I know other people have some different opinions on this. I have a friend who really loves the episode and thought it was brilliant. It didn't work for me. It's one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever made candidates that people come up with. I don't agree with that. I don't think any modern Star Trek episode is a candidate for the best episode of Star Trek Ooh. ever made, <laughs> personally. I'm sure I've mentioned before, hyperbole is one of my triggers. I really hate the internet's relationship with the hyperbole. Everything okay. be the best thing ever, or the worst thing ever. I don't subscribe to that. Nuance. <laughs> but when people are talking about modern Trek and saying this is the best Star Trek episode ever made or whatever, I think there are episodes of DS9 that deal with PTSD better than this episode does, for example. Yeah, I mean, we talked earlier about Nog's yeah. storyline where he loses his leg in battle and how he deals with that by going off to live in this fantasy world in the holodeck casino and... That, I thought, handled that really, really well. I mean, I'm not saying this episode did it badly, far from it. I'm just saying that I don't think it deserves its accolade as one of the best, or the best episode of Star Trek ever made. You could argue it's the best episode of Strange New Worlds. I would accept that argument. I don't agree. I would agree with that at all. <laughs> but I could accept that someone would believe that. That's the difference. Okay, that's fair. I can't accept that someone would think this is better than all 800 other episodes of Star Trek ever made. I mean, there's a lot of episodes of Star Trek. <laughs> I don't even know what I would consider my favourite ever episode of Star Trek. I don't think there is one. Threshold. <laughs> well, it could be. 100%. <laughs> it depends on my mood what episodes I might want to watch. I've got a lot of favourite episodes of Star Trek. This probably isn't one of them, actually. I don't think I'll, you know, I feel like watching episodes of Star Trek, I'll stick this one on. That's going to make me feel bad. <laughs> bad and then confused. <laughs> yeah, bad and then confused. I still don't understand that. But when I was writing my review, I watched that ending like six times. I was trying to figure out what it was getting at. No, I watched it again today because I knew we were going to be talking about it, and I still came away with the same feeling of I feel like this is a weak ending that doesn't fit these characters or this setting very well. And I did wonder maybe whether they showed it kind of in shadow and with various cuts so as to not have to display much gore but then in the finale it's just like well people and even within that same episode they have the flashback scenes to the wall it's not excessive gore but they are showing something horrific and gory so i don't think it's that because often that is why a stabbing scene or something is shot that kind of way it's because they for whatever reason age rating whatever they can't show the gore yeah but in, in streaming you're not really shooting for any particular yeah and streaming it's fine they're literally showing people having injuries from being blown up in a war in the same episode and then in the finale they're showing stuff to do with the gorn which was also quite bloody i guess with strange new worlds they don't want it to be inaccessible to a wide audience whereas mm. picard they can show each eb's eye getting ripped out and not care about oh, that which my god yeah it's just needlessly graphic <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. As someone who has a specific... I'm usually fine with watching something that has gore in it, but my one specific thing is I cannot stand eye gore. And when I watched that episode, 
came obviously as a complete surprise to me and I was just like, oh no, I really didn't want to see that today. <laughs> I'm not great with gore in general. It just bothers me. It makes me feel really squeamish. If I'm watching a TV show or a film where there's a graphic depiction of an operation, it just makes me feel sick as well. I hate that. Oh yeah, there's something about operations actually. I think it's because it's often, often stuff that's gory has quite quick cuts because obviously fights usually have a faster pace. But when it's something like a surgery, they're usually lingering on the shot more and showing more and stuff like that. So I think that might be why it's a bit like, ooh, you're not supposed to see it for this length of time. Don't want to see that. Just don't want to see it at all. Yeah. I think the lack of gore was due to the ambiguity of it. And I think the director said there was different versions of that scene as well as they cut it differently. So it sounds like the production team didn't know what they wanted to do with it either, which I think comes across. I, I think it feels sloppy because there was no vision to it, I guess, which is a, a wanky term. No, it's not a wanky term, says the artist. <laughs> <laughs> it just wasn't clear what you were supposed to get from it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it feels like, I don't know whether it's the case, but it feels like maybe the episode had to get rewritten or reshot a few times, yeah. or maybe they weren't sure how much they could portray certain things and things had to get reworked. Or there was no one clear vision on what the message was, which is surprising because I do think it really effectively portrayed the trauma of being involved in war and the lingering PTSD. Like I said, the flashback scenes I thought were so effective, even down to the voice of the transporter, eventually by the end of the episode is haunting. And you can see as a viewer how that sound would live in Mbenga's brain and haunt him forever. The never-ending incoming transport, incoming transport, over and over again. Yeah, it's so effective. So it's weird that the other half of the episode doesn't follow through on that very effectively. And having to erase the pattern of that guy that they stuck in there so that they could help more people. Yeah, like I thought that scene was brilliant, how Chapel hesitates because she's newer and more attached and Mbenga is like we save more people this way so we have to do it and just does it so that she doesn't have to have it on her shoulders I thought was a really brilliant addition. And then the conversation he has with that ensign or whoever he is where he can't figure out why the federation would be at war and why they should have to fight in a war and the idea of we have to fight to preserve that ideal we have to fight so that other people don't have to fight and don't have to get their hands dirty in this way. And we're actually fighting for our way of life here. They understand that's the mission. That's what they're there to do. And that, that's a really interesting one. Deep Space Nine dealt with that a lot as well. The idea of Starfleet and the Federation under pressure during a war. And what does that do to people? And does it make you lose sight of your values? And for Mbenga, it didn't. Or at least it didn't seem to at that point. He wanted to preserve those values. That's why he was in there. Yeah. And it was also... Because like, something I really love about Mbenga as a character is the gentleness that he has and the nurturing presence that he has. And I thought it was really interesting to see him in those flashbacks and see he went through all these horrific experiences and came out of it a more gentle person. We don't know what he was like before that, but he came out of that a gentle person. And it was also interesting to see maybe the origin of his knowledge of keeping someone in the pattern buffer, obviously relating to his daughter in season one. And I think that's why I don't quite buy the ending as well, because obviously, yes, like it's digging up trauma for him. It's literally triggering him being around Ra. I don't know if I still buy that Mbenga would 
do the things he did at the end of the episode. It's not even killing Ra necessarily, because obviously we've established he's killed people before. It's him just being totally fine with lying about it to Starfleet and letting Chapel be in on that lie. Her also being fine with that lie, I don't really buy. It could have been many things. It could have been an accident. It could have been a blackout. It could have been any number of reasons that he ended up turning the knife on him. The blackout one's probably the most powerful, I would think, as in he was just overcome with this surge of emotion and killed him. And that's something he could be honest about as well, after the fact. One thing I wanted to see in the flashbacks that we didn't really get was some Discovery design stuff, some Discovery uniforms or whatever, because it was during the first season of Discoveries. That's true, actually. I do really love the Discovery uniforms. I think they're really good. They were wearing the tactical gear that you saw in Mm. Discover. Well, I think it's similar to Strange New Worlds anyway. I mean, cool to see those Discovery era uniforms again. And even the shuttles and stuff, just the general aesthetic would have been quite cool to just see back. Yeah, it's kind of odd, actually. I, don't, I wonder why. Maybe they just didn't have the models anymore. The CGI models. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. They recycled all the uniforms because they don't use them anymore. Yeah, because they replaced them with those hideous grey uniforms in Discovery. Season four, they have coloured ones. Oh, do they? TNG coloured ones as well. Ah, uh, okay. I kind of fell off season four. I don't really remember it very well. Burnham's wearing a red uniform as captain and so on. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I still just think that... God, this is so off topic. I'm just talking about uniform design. What a surprise. <laughs> the costume designer wants to talk about uniform design. The disco uniforms are just so sleek and cool to me that then... It's so weird that they go like 800 years in the future and it's like, look at these boxy, dull, <laughs> grey uniforms. <laughs> they don't look flattering on anyone of any gender or size. <laughs> Although a lot of people were annoyed about the Discovery uniforms as well because it's so close to the original series and they're wearing completely different uniforms than they've never seen before. <laughs> it's weird if you look at season two of Discovery, all the random course correcting they do. Oh, look, the Klingons have hair again. You didn't like hairless Klingons? Well, they have hair. And they shave their heads when they're at war. No, they don't. That's never been established. <laughs> but that's, sure, that's a thing now. And Pike getting rid of the holographic communicator on the Enterprise, because he doesn't like it. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with Pike not liking it because he's old school. But why does everybody get rid of it? Well, because people complain that they have holographic communicators in Discovery. Yeah, and then if you really want to be a stickler for canon, well, then the discovery goes 800 years into the future, so it wouldn't even be able to catch on as a trend because they're gone. <laughs> I don't even blame them for all the visual course correcting in season two of Discovery because Star Trek fans get so rabid about that sometimes. Like, I don't blame them. It was so transparent, though. It really annoyed me that you had lines of dialogue devoted to, look, we listened. Yeah. I just think it's a shame that they felt like they had to do that because people were just so incapable of imagining, hey, maybe a show that comes out 60 years after the thing it's based on will look different because cameras are different now, the technology and materials available to us are different now, and the quality of televisions is different now. Obviously it's going to look different. You are aware that we have more advanced technology than a lot of what yeah. we in the original series. We have flat screens. They have to use tablets. The vast majority of alien makeups are now done in silicone, not in foam latex, because the materials are just different now. It's disappointing. Yeah. So yeah, the Klingon PTSD versus Gorn PTSD. 
you don't really get much of the PTSD angle in the finale, but like you say, the Gorn are bizarrely portrayed because they aren't characters. They aren't defined in any way. They're just monstrous presence. Even the reason they're acting that way is explained as it's something to do with a solar flare or whatever. Arena already did it where it's you're in our space and making colonies and we don't like that. But that would have also been enough. Yeah, and in this they kind of try to push this idea that they're going, we're making new territory and you're not allowed here and... It's more of a, we will declare war if you come over the front kind of thing. Well, it's just a random instinctual response to a solar flare that's making them act as... Or that's what Scotty thinks. Yeah. And then, okay, so if we're talking about the finale, something else that really annoyed me. <laughs> so they go and blow up the ship that was already there. I can't remember what it's called. The Cayuga. The Cayuga, thank you. At the start of the episode, they're going, oh, there might be survivors. We should go look for them or find a way to communicate with them or something. Okay, yep, that's exactly what Starfleet officers would do. And then before establishing whether there are in fact any survivors, they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to punt this ship into this tower, destroying it and killing anybody who might still be alive on board. We haven't even checked if Chapel's alive yet, and it's just lucky that she ran into Spock when he went there to do it. I'm sorry, what? It just felt so out of place. Similarly to the thing with Mbenga, I was just like, is this really what Starfleet would be okay with? The convenience of Chapel being the only survivor as well. Of course. Without them making it clear why she was the only survivor. Yeah. It would have been okay if, if there had been a group of like three of them and it's her and two other people or something at least. And then they can at least have a conversation about it. And they're running away from the Gorn and the Gorn picks off all but her or something like that. Yeah. That would have worked. I think they wasted a lot of time in that episode. There was a weird point where there was three plans and two of them came to nothing because the tower plan worked. Yeah. Because there was, we're going to use the shuttle to escape. We're going to use the shuttle to fly into the tower and we've got the saucer flying into the tower, and it was the saucer flying into the tower, and then the other two plans were pointless. And then Pike's just left there like, I guess I'm useless. It was just busy work for them. I think they could have joined them up a bit better by making the people on the surface do stuff. Yeah. Similar to Under the Cloak of War, I felt like it was quite a structurally messy episode that didn't maybe quite know what it wanted to do. It's weird because you say everything kind of happened too fast. It's this weird thing where like, I agree with you, I do think that a lot of things happened too fast in that episode, but simultaneously it also felt like almost nothing was actually happening because obviously it's a two-parter. They were wasting time because they already decided that this was a cliffhanger. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not against them doing a cliffhanger, but it did feel like the quality of this episode might have suffered because they needed to get it to a specific point in order for it to be a cliffhanger. I am against the whole notion of cliffhangers in this way. I think that TV has kind of moved on from that. It's not that you can't still have cliffhangers, but there's better ways to do them. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., for example, what they would do is they would finish a story and then start a new one. And in that new story, they would tease what you can expect. So the cliffhanger would be associated with this new story that would wrap up the old one. Whereas this, they just cut the thing in two. And that's what they used to do with Star Trek. Some of the end-of-season cliffhangers, particularly on Voyager, were just nonsense. The Equinox <laughs> one, for example, you've got this alien flying towards Janeway that might kill her. And then the conclusion is she just jumps out the way and it misses. Yeah. <laughs> so glad I waited three months for that. It's fine when you're watching it on Netflix and all the episodes just autoplay. <laughs> I had a very different experience. But at the time, it was, how is she going to get out of this one? Yeah, jumps out the way. Jumps out the way. Yeah. And a lot of the time, these cliffhangers are written without knowing how to resolve them. So therefore, what you tend to find is that the second part is kind of messy. It doesn't make sense because it hasn't been built as one episode that they've just 
made longer for whatever reason. The showrunner or whoever was patting himself on the back for doing this and referencing Best of Both Worlds, which is not just the most famous Star Trek cliffhanger, it's probably one of the most famous cliffhangers in TV history. I don't remember it at the time because I was like three years old when it aired, but I understand the impact of it, especially when you look at the historical context of it. It was unclear whether Patrick Stewart was coming back for season four because his contract was up. And they were negotiating it until quite late on before filming it. So they ended season three not knowing if the captain was coming back. So they had to come up with a way to get rid of him yeah. or keep him in some way. And the cliffhanger was written by a writer who didn't think he was going to come back to write the second part. He ended up coming <laughs> back to write the second part. So he kind of wrote himself into a corner without realizing that he would have to fix it. It's quite funny. But the cliffhanger itself is amazing. I don't know if you watched it when I sent the clip. Yeah, I have. So the difference between the Best of Both Worlds cliffhanger, which is way better than this, and this cliffhanger is that it has impact because it ends on Riker making a decision. He sees his former captain is now a Borg and he says, fire. So he makes a decision to turn a weapon on him that will probably kill him, at least as far as he knows. And then... In this, you see Pike standing around, completely indecisive, not knowing what to do. The bridge is exploding around him. He's been ordered to leave. His crew are screaming at him for orders, and he does nothing because they're delaying it until next season to find out what the response is. And it's one of those things where they decided that the plot needed Pike to be indecisive in that moment so that we can spend the next maybe two years wondering what he's going to do. But it makes him look bad as a character makes him look bad as a captain. He's supposed to be better than that. We know he's a better commander than that. We know he would know what to do, what decision to make. Yeah, I agree with you. It feels a little bit like Pike's established characterization gets shunted to the side for the sake of a cliffhanger, which isn't even a very good cliffhanger. It would be slightly better if it ended on him saying, get us out of here or something, because the shock would be, you're leaving the crew behind? Yeah. One thing I did think was slightly effective was I did notice the slightly different transporter effect when the Gorn beamed up the crew. Yeah, me too. The green in it. And I was like, that's not a Starfleet transporter effect. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, oh yeah, the crew aren't aboard. They must be on the Gorn ship. Uh-oh. What? Well, <laughs> sorry, La'an. <laughs> yeah, La'an's stuck in a Gorn ship with people. La'an and Benga Ortegas? I think so. Everybody who was on the planet that wasn't with Pike. Yeah, so I think it's those three. I can't remember if there's a fourth person with them. No, don't think so. So basically all my faves are going to be murdered by the Gorn. <laughs> well, La'Anne's the expendable one, technically. She's the one that can die. No! Because <laughs> she's not in canon later on. Yeah, I know, I know. I feel like given how much work they've put into her storyline this season and how even though she's made progress it doesn't feel like she's had a complete narrative arc i don't think she's going to die no they're not going to kill her in the first episode of the next season probably god no especially when they're probably going to kill Batel instead yeah Batel's dead <laughs> impregnated by gordon i think she's a goner or at least if she lives it's going to be big physical ramifications well she lost her ship and her entire crew as well or at least most of them so she might as well just die. Yeah, I don't want to live with that. Just die to emotionally fulfill a man's arc. It's fine. Yeah, fridging, it's, it's all the rage. <laughs> God, I remember when the trailer for that episode first came out. Like you said earlier, when Battelle says at the end of Subspace Rhapsody, oh, I've got a priority one mission, da 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 and everyone watching is like, oh, so you're going to die. And then the trailer for Hegemony came out and we saw the shot of Chapel lying on the floor bleeding. And people were very convinced that someone was going to die. And obviously nobody knew it was a two-parter. And the three names that kept getting banded around were Chapel, Ortegas, and Battelle. And I was like, 
I don't think Chapel's going to die because she's in the be original Chapel. series. And then Ortega, that would just feel really cruel because we know the actress's circumstances and everything. But yeah, I'm pretty sure Patella's probably going to die. <laughs> and she's the easiest one to kill as well because she's not in the main cast. She's adjacent to Yeah. It. And it also kind of lets Pike off the hook for the whole thing we were talking about earlier where he has this dilemma over, do you tell Patel that in seven or eight years or whatever it is at this point, this thing is going to happen to you that's going to change your life completely and is obviously going to affect her too? Yeah, I guess it's the neatest one. I feel like it's possible she might survive because otherwise they would have just killed her in this episode on the planet. They wouldn't have brought her aboard the Enterprise. Maybe. I don't know if they're going to do some horrible she's writhing in pain on the med bed thing yeah i don't know i mean they're obviously gonna try and save her what they've done is they've created a bunch of things that they can follow up on next season yeah. and i suspect the writers have no idea how to follow up on them there's just a lot of peril left up in the air which is obviously what they wanted and thought was an effective cliffhanger i like the young scotty though for the first time ever played by an actual scottish actor yeah, and he was really good too. I really liked him. Martin Quinn, the guy's name is. He hasn't been in an awful lot. He's really good. I like the, when my life is threatened, I get a bit creative. <laughs> it's in keeping with Scotty's character as well, just MacGyvering anything up into workable stuff. I imagine Pelly will be sticking around next season, but I hope Scotty will hang around as well. Yeah, his ship is gone is what he said. So presumably he could stick around on the Enterprise. I don't think they would have introduced him if they weren't planning to keep him around. Yeah, or at least have him be sort of a slightly recurring character like Kirk. Yeah. It was really interesting that they managed to get away with introducing Scotty without it leaking in any way. Yeah. The reason they did the Paul Wesley announcement was because it leaked. People spotted him on set filming and stuff. Did people know that he was Kirk necessarily from just behind the scene photos? I don't think anybody knew at the time, but they ended up just announcing it. Oh, okay. After people spotted Paul Wesley because of the credibility he carries as a Vampire Diaries actor or whatever oh that's what he's from yeah but they did the announcement i guess earlier than they were supposed to well his appearance in the finale was a surprise but it wasn't as big a surprise as it would have been if they hadn't announced it earlier okay yeah i can't quite remember the timeline on that now i feel like i knew for ages that kirk was going to be in the show but i think martin quid can sneak under the radar a lot easier than paul wesley can because no one knows who he is yeah he's not a very established actor it was really good it was a really good performance but there was no leaks of, there's a random Scottish guy on set wearing a red uniform. <laughs> Will this be Scotty? Who knows? <laughs> Couldn't tell you. I guess they were filming in closed sets with him all the time, so it would have been easy to hide it. They weren't outside in any way. Yeah, leaks are what happen when you go to Toronto. Yeah, and it's Pellia's actual best student. But she also hates him. <laughs> <laughs> Which feels very Pellia. I do really like Pelia. I just feel like there were so many opportunities to give her more focus in the show that weren't taken. I would like for her to get some more focus next season, assuming she's sticking around. I did like when Ahura was saying, I've got a bit of a crazy theory, and she's like, oh, I love a crazy theory. She's great. She's like kooky wine aunt, but in Star Trek, <laughs> and it's brilliant. I love it. Anything else on the Garn? I think we're going to get to the point where there's some level of understanding. They understand their sentient. They're going to resolve this peacefully somehow, I think. Yeah. They'll resolve it by speaking to them. Yeah, which again, like I said earlier, I'm like, okay, neat, but did we really need two and a bit seasons of a show to get to that in the year 2023? <laughs> I think also the other thing is if they did want it to be a bit more of a slow burner thing, that's fine if they wanted to explore that narrative. But I feel like starting from the point where so many people just perceive them as monsters and have genuinely traumatic experiences with them like La'an does, it just kind of undercuts 
trying to construct that narrative through line at all. I think if they started from a place less extreme than that, then maybe it would work better to have it be this, ooh, can we really communicate with them thing? But then the idea of are they even intelligent is just so stupid to me in a Star Trek show. You see them flying spaceships, right? Who do you think built the spaceships and is flying the spaceships and maintaining the space? They're obviously intelligent. It's baffling to me that they think it's this deep, interesting thing to explore. And I'm just like, can we skip past this, please? Because it's actually really bad. And when the original series managed to cover all of that ground in a single episode. Yeah. Although, conversely, they did the entirety of season two of Picard in one episode this season. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is basically season two of Picard in one episode. Is it? I haven't watched season two of Picard. In season two of Picard, the timeline goes wrong. They go back in time and have to fix it. And it takes them all season to do it. But in this, it's one episode and done. The one thing I remember about Picard is it's really slow. So (laughs) that that tracks. Season two is painful. I'm glad I stopped watching it. Even when they were advertising season three, they were basically saying, you don't have to watch season two or even season one to enjoy this. Wow, that's how you know you messed up. Yeah, they knew that people didn't like it. (laughs) Season three is better than season two, but still not that good. Unless you have supreme nostalgia for the next generation, then don't bother. Which I don't because... I've tried to watch it multiple times and I can just never really get into it. I understand a lot of people say it's the best one. For me, I'm just like, I don't click with these characters. I don't find it very exciting and interesting for me. It's still my favourite Star Trek, although I acknowledge that that Deep Space Nine is a better show. It's just TNG is my Star Trek. It's what I grew up most on. That's fair. Yeah, I kind of had that before I'd watched all these all these modern shows had come out where I'd be like, Voyage is the one I enjoy watching the most and find rewatchable. But DS9 is the better show that I think is emblematic of the things Star Trek can be. Voyager is the one that gained the biggest audience in more modern times because I guess it is just easier than others to drop into. Yeah, it's very easily watchable and bingeable, I think. Yeah, and we've gotten this far without talking about Ad Astra Perispera, which is weird, but it doesn't really fit oh. into any of the major art. We had mentioned it a few times, I think, but not super extensively. I mentioned earlier that I hate hyperbole, but I do think this number's among the better of Star Trek's courtroom drama episodes. I thought it was a really good episode. And there are a few of them. There's a lot of court drama episodes. I feel like every series has to have its courtroom drama episode where we debate the humanity of someone. Or more than one. Yeah. I found this one really interesting because it does that thing I like. It interrogates Federation values more than anything else. They talk about this law. It's a fear-based law. We're afraid of genetic engineering. We hate it. We hate anybody that's genetically enhanced. But we're an inclusive socialist utopia that welcomes everybody. Yeah, totally. (laughs) But those two things don't match up. It's just we don't talk about that thing. And you get a bit of that in Prodigy as well with Dal, because he's genetically enhanced. Spoilers for Prodigy, for anybody that cares. (laughs) It actually ends quite similarly for him as well. It's like a provisional yeah. acceptance of just him, not everyone that's genetically yeah. enhanced. Funnily enough, it's the same conclusion in Deep Space Nine as well, where they agree to just forget about that where Bashir's concerned because... He's one of the good ones. He's done okay, yeah. Yeah, so that's something I think is kind of interesting. Normally I'm not a big fan of one of the good one narratives, which was what we saw with Ra as well. He's different from other Klingons. He's one of the good ones. He puts down his own people, which in that context didn't work because of the messaging it was attached to and stuff. In Ad Astra Paraspera, I felt like this episode was very deliberately using that kind of narrative to make a point about how systems will 
choose to make exceptions for exceptional individuals, but can't overcome systemic prejudices. And it also kind of harkens to how progress has to be made for certain marginalized groups with regard to legal rights and stuff like that, where it is often this process of picking one particular smaller aspect where you can find one case that will enable you to make the point and have a win in that situation, which will then lead to doing something bigger next time. So for example, during civil rights movement, there were a lot of protests and things like that. A lot of people consider, for example, Rosa Parks. A lot of the way we're taught about Rosa Parks in school and stuff is she was just a nice old black lady who wanted to sit on the bus one day. And what's missing from that is the fact that she was actually very active as an activist, a political activist, worked with Martin Luther King and stuff like that, and was trying to fight to free the Scottsboro boys from prison. And the situation with her on the bus was something that was actually pre-planned. And she was a specific person who was chosen for a specific reason because it was felt that she would be more empathetic and palatable to white people reading about it in the news. Okay. And the whole thing was basically planned as a way to edge towards more rights in that movement. So Doctor Who ignored all of that to do their episode about it then? Yes, it did. I strongly dislike that episode of Doctor Who. I like that episode, but I didn't know the history. Yeah. But that's interesting. So yeah, I felt like Ad Astra Prospero was kind of hearkening to situations like that, where the lawyer, I'm forgetting her name. I know it's written down on our thing. Nira. Nira, yeah. It seems like she's someone who knows that and she sees this not only as an opportunity to help an old friend, but also an opportunity to sow a seed that can help further the rights of genetically modified people in the future. So I thought that was very interesting. Well, that's how Pike convinces her to take the case. This will really help all the other cases you've got against the Federation. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, okay, I'll help. Pike being like, I'll die on your floor. <laughs> <laughs> help or I'll kill myself. I'll just suffocate in your lobby if you don't help me. Yeah. <laughs> also, it's the very few judges will want to be the ones that force a kind of systemic change as well. And maybe they don't quite have the power to, let's change that law, but they have the power to rule on this one individual. And the resolution ends up being a technicality anyway. Mm -hmm. Technically, this fulfills all the criteria for asylum. Yeah. Technically. She didn't specifically ask for it, but she kind of did if we squint at it sideways. And that's it. It's a bit like in the Voyager episode, Author, Author, where the magistrate there says he's going to extend the definition of artist to include specifically the doctor because he doesn't want to be the one that grants EMH's rights. Yeah. Actually, yeah, that's a good comparison to this episode. And eventually, I guess the doctor will be considered a person eventually i don't know prodigy season two might tell us that if we ever get to see it yeah prodigy season two i do hope that because obviously now we know that dal faces the same issue that una was facing so things obviously haven't improved for genetically modified people as much as nira and una would have hoped in that time well you know that with bashir as well they were going to kick him out of starfleet and bashir yeah yeah so there's zero progress over the next hundred years. Oh yeah, and Prodigy's after Bashir, so yeah. So hopefully season two or further of Prodigy could maybe show an actual systemic change for genetically modified people would be cool to see. Or in Discovery, you can establish that we're not afraid of it anymore. Yeah. Has Discovery in seasons three and four dealt with genetically modified people at all? I no, can't remember. Not at all. Not that I can remember anyway. But no, I think it's been a non-issue. A non-issue in the sense that they just haven't brought it up. It's just not a thing in the show. Another part of the resolution I really liked was when Una finds out that she's literally the poster woman for Starfleet and her favourite saying accompanies her on the poster. It's the idea that not only will I be 
accepted, I'll be the example to live up to, the example that gets people in the door. Yeah, in one way, it's really sweet, heartwarming thing. It's also just very funny because Boimler freaking out whenever he sees her is fantastic. He has a poster of you. What? In his bunk. <laughs> Makes you wonder if she's done some modelling work that she wanted to keep hidden. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have you seen Rebecca Romain? I'd buy it. But then you also think about how this episode ended and the fact that we know that Bashir and Dahl are still dealing with the same thing in the future. And I realise that it doesn't necessarily mean that Una is fully accepted. It means that she's kind of become almost a token for Starfleet. So it still feels like it's commenting on Starfleet's values and... Or even we're just going to ignore it. Yeah. We're not going to attribute this to you anymore. It's a modification of the deal they wanted to make in the first place. We'll bury this and we'll let you go on your way. Mm, yeah. And she didn't want to do that, but it seems like she's willing to accept the, technically this is an asylum thing, and I guess an asylum record would be confidential anyway. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I don't know. But it seems like it will just be never brought up again, which is another classic Trek thing, isn't it? We'll have this big issue and we'll just never mention it again. It's weird because I would want to think that that storyline is going to continue to affect Una and other characters going forward, obviously. We know that there's not a whole lot it can progress in particular ways because of established canon, unless they decide to just be like, fuck it. But it would be a shame if it just feels like it doesn't affect her anymore or is never thought about ever again. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's scope to bring it back. They could do more with Nira in future episodes. They didn't do an awful lot with the animosity that was randomly between them. It gets mentioned a couple of times and then resolved without being resolved. It's sort of resolved through the proceedings of the court case, which is fine. I thought the actress who played Nira was very, very good. She was really good, yeah. There were some confusing things that came up during the trial. Attacking April, for example, that was pointless. Here's all the times that you broke the Prime Directive. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. It's just you taking an opportunity to take a jab at April for some reason. Wasn't the point she was trying to make that... Oh yeah, the laws are flimsy and, and are ignored sometimes. That he's a hypocrite too. At first, when I was first watching the episode, I thought maybe there was something with her wanting his record stricken from the courts so that something else he had said or was going to say couldn't appear in it. It didn't feel clever enough. Yeah, it was an apples and oranges type situation as well, because April's rebuttal was when you're out there commanding a starship and you're faced with a situation, then the prime directive isn't a holy doctrine, right? It's a rule and it's there to be interpreted. I prefer that interpretation of the prime directive because you see it in things like Voyager sometimes where it's, no, we have to abide by this at all costs. We can't possibly go against this, but it's a rule and it doesn't apply in all situations. It's a guideline and it should be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. Plus they've played fast and loose with the prime directive in this show anyway. Children of the Comet, they have that, oh well, we've made it rain on this planet. That's against the Prime Directive. We've interfered with the natural evolution there. We're going to remove this asteroid because, according to me, that's not natural development. <laughs> well, it is because the asteroid went there without anyone's interference. It just happened. Yeah. So by taking it away, you are interfering. Stuff like that. I think it's fine. It's, I've broken the Prime Directive, but here's the case I'm making for why I did it. Yeah. Which is a thing that happens all the time in Star Trek, where it's like, we're kind of backed into a corner here, so we have to break the Prime Directive in order for the best thing to happen, the best outcome to happen, or to help people in the right way, or whatever. Yeah, which is fine. And that's why the April interrogation thing was about out there. There could have been a closer example. And the other thing about the genetic engineering ban in the Federation. That only applies to humans. What do the Vulcans think about it? What do the Andorians think about it? What do the other member races think about it? Oh, I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, there's a Vulcan lawyer and a Vulcan judge, and I think there was another alien judge. Yeah. 
But what reason do they have to be against genetic engineering because of something that happened on Earth? Has there been episodes in Star Trek that have really discussed trill genetic engineering or anything like that? No, the closest was in Enterprise where Archer had a conversation with Phlox because the Denobulans, they use genetic engineering as part of their medical science. Uh And that works out fine for them. And that was the point that Archer made. But you guys seem to have perfected using it without it destroying your society. So why can't we? And... Well, Flox doesn't really have an answer because they're not there to have that debate. But with the Federation having so many different perspectives from so many different races, why is it the humans that get to decide that we're afraid of genetic engineering? Once again, human centricity in Star Trek leads to not really understanding the alien species particularly well. Yeah, but it isn't even brought up as well. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't really thought of that before, but you're right. I think even in the Bashir episodes where he meets the other genetically engineered people... They're all human, aren't they? Yeah. Hmm. So there we go. That's another question that needs to be tackled. Yeah. And also, yeah, because we now have Dahl, who's a mixture of all these different alien species. Again, another window for Star Trek to really mishandle mixed race identity. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see what happens. Well, I guess for him, his identity is his own, isn't it? He doesn't conform to anything. He doesn't know what he is. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. We'll see what happens if there is even a season two. They did have the episode where he had all his genetic markers activated and he was... Klingon for five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Romulan for five minutes. And that had some stuff, anyway. It was a joke, wasn't it? Yeah. That was ultimately what the intent behind it was. It wasn't really intended to be much else. Yeah, yeah. It's just usually it starts with stuff around the language and how they describe it and stuff. But it's been a really long time since I watched the episode, so I don't feel like I could accurately dissect it. Una's statement that she makes about why she believes in Starfleet, even though they hate her, essentially, or hate her people in the sense of having a law that prohibits their existence or prohibits their membership in the Federation, certainly. The idea that I believe that Starfleet and the Federation are an organisation that genuinely strive to be perfect, even though they aren't perfect. I really like that statement. And it doesn't let the Federation off the hook for this insane law, but it does present it as a, it's not perfect, but it can get better and it will get better because there are procedures in place that allow people at least have their day in court so that they can debate this issue and talk about it. And that's better than nothing on threat of prison prison and whatever else but it's an irrational fear-based law that comes from the fact that genetically enhanced people took over earth Mm -hmm. at some point either in the 90s or in the 2030s or whatever whichever way you want to look at it whenever that happened whichever timeline you want to subscribe to but her sincere belief that the federation want to be the perfect organization that they're supposed to be or that they set out to be at least explains why she's comfortable still being a part of it even though she's dealt with this persecution. Yeah, there's definitely some respects in which I think the analogy of using genetically modified people to discuss various marginalised groups as different comparisons you could make to race or religion or whatever. It's a bit like the X-Men, they're a stand-in for anything. Yeah, yeah. There's some ways in which I think it works, there's some ways in which I think it didn't quite work. I did quite like the discussion on the idea of passing with Una being played by a white actor and Nira being played by a black actor. I don't actually know what about their individual genetic modifications makes Una able to pass and her not, because we don't really know what Nira's modifications are. She doesn't visually look modified. And Una mentioned that there was a boy in her school who was modified like her to glow when he was injured and stuff, and she has that, so then she doesn't pass because if she scraped her knee on the playground, everyone would see it (laughs) so yeah it was like some stuff where i was like oh this feels a little bit clunky but overall i think that the episode generally worked really well and had some really good stuff in it yeah and resolving it without changing canon 
worked really well, as in we managed to keep Una around and we preserved the fact that Bashir will go through this in about 100 years' time. Yeah, poor old Bashir. Yeah, that's a problem. Although one thing I did wonder was, because Una's in prison in the alternate future in the finale of season one, so I don't know what Pike did differently in this timeline. Yeah, because the whole point is that Pike is still around in that timeline, so I don't know. We'll never know. Because he would have had to do something differently to have her not go to prison. Mm. And I can't imagine it would be going to get nearer, because I imagine he would have done that anyway. Who knows? They hadn't written that episode yet when they wrote the finale. <laughs> and he didn't learn anything in the finale of the first season that helped him here. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just one of those things. It's an alternate timeline. <laughs> don't have to think too much about it. Maybe Nero just doesn't exist in that timeline or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Even though it only diverged after the point where Pike wrote a letter. Maybe she died in that timeline. I don't know. <laughs> maybe no I was going to say maybe Pike died in that timeline just died in the waiting room <laughs> he sent someone else who died in the waiting room yeah, yeah and they were like oh clear this other body <laughs> anything final on Ad Astra per Aspera I think I covered most of yeah, it yeah I think we covered everything so it's always fun to go through the favourites and least favourites for the mm. season so what were your favourite episodes did you have a favourite episode that stands above the others. I think it just has to be Subspace Rhapsody <laughs> for various reasons. The boring answer, okay. I was so looking forward to it. I love musicals so much. It was a breaking point for a lot of fans, I think. Oh, I know, but they're all cowards. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite episodes were probably Subspace Rhapsody, Those Old Scientists, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, and then Ad Astra Perospera. I don't think Ad Astra is as exciting as those other episodes, but I think what it's trying to do is very commendable. It's a Star Trek episode we haven't seen in a long time. One that's very slow and deliberate. Yeah, and it's nice to see them still doing those kind of episodes because even though it's more exciting to watch faster-paced stuff, it does sometimes feel as though people see Star Trek as something that has to be very action-oriented because it's sci-fi when Star Trek historically has had a mixture of different genres, one of them being more action-oriented things, and then a lot of them being more drama and slower-paced, thoughtful episodes and stuff like that. So it's nice to see that back. I like some of the production touches in Ad Astra Peraspera as well. The production designers have said that as they get closer to the original series, they're going to add more set details that reference the original series. So in that, you had the little coloured floppy disks that they would yeah. plug into <laughs> the computers and, and the thing they put their hand on while they're giving testimony as well. And even mm. the trial dress uniforms looked a lot like the original series ones. And the computers, they have all sorts of random multicolored buttons on them now as well. So they're lurching in that direction. Yeah, I think that the production design in this show is really stellar. It's a great update of the original series aesthetic. Yeah. You have to kind of accept the fact that the bridge is like three times the size it was in the original series. It's fine. <laughs> and Pike's bachelor pad as well. I'm so obsessed with the bedrooms on Starfleet ships. This sounds so weird. But I'm always just like, okay, what if this was just generic decoration? What if it's actually yours? Because all of it looks like it was made for a hotel. Yeah. But Pike has like half a deck as his quarters. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen Kirk's quarters in the original series. They're tiny. He has like a desk and a bed and not much else. They didn't have enough plywood, okay? Although the Enterprise under Kirk has double the crew, so I wonder if they really change the interior to make everything a bit more condensed. Cut down the captain's quarters to make way for, like, three other people's quarters. Yeah. <laughs> but even Laan has a big room and so on. Everybody yeah. has massive You notice rooms. that in, in the modern shows, everyone has these massive Hilton hotel rooms <laughs> that they sleep in. 
Yeah. And then you've got the AR wall everywhere. Yeah. The LED wall, just using it wherever we can. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those are good favourites. I think my favourite episode is Lost in Translation. That was also a very good episode. We didn't really talk about that one much, but that was also very good. I don't know, maybe Kirk bias. I like James T. Kirk. He's in it. <laughs> But I think it was a good episode for Ahura. I think it was a good Star Trek episode as well. It had the strange nebula aliens. For me, it did suffer slightly from the fact that I immediately was like, oh, okay, so the nebula is sentient and the station is hurting them somehow. But then five seconds of the concept being introduced and then they spend the whole episode going like, what's going on? And I was like, have you never watched Star Trek before? <laughs> the nebula is always sentient. You have deuterium poisoning and that's why you're imagining things. Nope. <laughs> You are aware that you're in Star Trek, guys. Come on. But come on. Has no one invented a nebula sentience detector or something? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was obvious. And you're kind of waiting for the characters to catch up. But it's pretty new to them. Yeah, yeah. It was a good episode with good performances and nice to see Hema. If it was in Lower Decks, if they hadn't figured it out within five seconds, then you'd be questioning why. Yeah. <laughs> It's reminiscent of a lot of other ones. I'll give it that. But I liked it. I liked seeing Kurt. I liked his relationship with his brother as well. It's the first time we've really got to see Sam do anything substantial. Yeah, Sam is very tertiary yeah. a lot of the time. And he got a bit more this season, which was nice. I like the idea of their father being this impossible to please guy, or at least that's how they see him. And they're just kind of competing for his approval. And Kirk feels like he needs to work harder because his dad gave his brother his name, as if that's important. Does James Kirk want to be called George Kirk? Is that a thing that he cares about? I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. But I like the brotherly rivalry. And I like at the end where Sam says, Jim, I'm really proud of you. Well done for being first officer of the Farragut. And he's waiting for Jim to say, I'm proud of you too. And he doesn't get it. Yeah. Yeah, I like that Kirk arrogance. We know that, well, maybe you don't, but in the original series, Sam appears, he dies on a colony somewhere. F. Yeah, poor guy. And playing his corpse is just William Shatner with a fake moustache. Really? Are you joking or is that true? (laughs) No, I'm not joking. That's true. I'll send you the picture. It's very funny. (laughs) Oh my God, that's fantastic. Oh God, I love how low budget old Star Trek was. (laughs) (laughs) In that episode, he has a wife and three kids. They don't die. Just him. Oh, good. That's nice. (laughs) So there are descendants of the Kirk family that could be alive in the 24th and 25th and beyond centuries. Yeah. Oh, speaking of Sam, there's a moment in Subspace Rhapsody I just want to draw attention to, which is in the finale song when the Klingons are doing their K-pop bit. You can see Sam in the background just vibing along to the song. (laughs) And Uhura's like, excuse me, what are you doing? (laughs) When he's vibing along to Chapel's song as well earlier in the episode. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't get his own song. He's just like, I'm just here to support everybody else with the vibes. <laughs> and when the two Kirks are playing about in the transporter room and Jim replies to Ahura and Sam's like, she was talking to me. I work here. I actually live here. Why are you on my ship? <laughs> Canonically, you shouldn't be here. You already met Pike once. You're not allowed to see him again. You get to come here when I die. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was weird because in Lost in Translation, they did that nod to what Kirk said in the original series. He said he met Pike once when he was promoted to fleet captain. And then in that episode, he's temporarily promoted to fleet captain. (laughs) But then Jim turns up later anyway and sees him Mm -hmm. and sits next to him, in fact, during a briefing. They've thrown that out the window. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, so that's my favourite one. I did like Ad Astra Peraspera. I liked those old scientists. I thought they melded the animated and live action stuff really well and again they did that whole federation trying to be better thing or trying to be the perfection where 
oh yeah, we misjudged the Orions. They're not all pirates. Wow, who knew? Not everyone of the same species is the same. (laughs) It's almost like you have to keep learning this lesson over and over again. (laughs) It's that assumption they make. They're not all pirates, but there's been a lot of piracy reported in this area. (laughs) And that is a ship that Orion pirates tend to use. And all this evidence that I can see how you got there. But you're wrong. But you're wrong, yeah. Yeah, in that episode, I thought it was also just really cool and impressive how Tawny Newsom and Jack Quaid translated the physicalities of their characters as well as the voices into live action, especially Jack Quaid, because Boimler obviously is a lot more intense than Mariner a lot of the time. Yeah, I thought Jack Quaid was the better of the two of them. And it's quite interesting structurally as well. The episode effectively ends halfway through where they get Boimler at the portal and then when Mariner shows up and then you have another episode. So it's almost like there's two Lower Decks episodes Oh yeah, I was looking at him getting to the portal and I'm like, hang on a minute, trying to see the timestamp. Mate, you're not going home yet. (laughs) It's funny how the stakes are really low in the episode as well. I mean, I guess if you think you might get stuck like 120 years in your past, that's pretty high stakes. But as far as stuff for Pike and everyone, it's just, oh, these guys are really annoying. This is just a nuisance. Yeah. (laughs) We had one annoying person from the future, now we have another annoying person from the future. (laughs) And the way they reference the production changes as well the production style changes do you feel like they talk really slowly you talk quicker because your episodes are only 20 minutes yeah yeah, yeah. everyone's really serious and talks really slowly and quietly <laughs> <laughs> it was a good episode i think they pulled off the crossover quite well yeah definitely i also loved how that and subspace rhapsody had the unique openings subspace rhapsody obviously with the acapella version of the intro theme and then those old scientists having the animated opening yeah where they changed a couple of things. They had the spacefaring organism stuck to the nacelle mm. and the koalas there as well. That weird koala they keep referencing as being the thing beyond death or something. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is that? <laughs> it's a strange recurring reference. So those are my favourites. Least favourite episode would be charades. Mm. But mostly because of the laughs. I feel like charades is one of your least favourites as well. Yeah, charades and... Under the Cloak of War. I also really dislike Hegemony. I don't like Hegemony that much either. I keep saying so many episodes. This is what I mean about how I feel like, for me, this season was more inconsistent. There were some very high highs, but some very low lows for me. Whereas in the previous season, for me, there were only two episodes I didn't really like very much. And one of them, it was only half of the storyline I didn't like. And then there were episodes that were just good. I liked Lost in Translation, had some issues with it, but not major enough that I was disliking the episode actively or anything. Charades did give birth to that meme of Spock being held back while someone says something he doesn't like. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think that was really harsh, though. Sam's just finished his lunch or whatever while he's giving a briefing and he doesn't tidy up immediately. Yeah. They have that recurring thing with Spock just tidying up, though. He does it in Lost in Translation as well. I think it's because they're trying to push the neurodivergence coding. Yeah, he shows up to Kirk and Uhura's table and puts the glass on a tray or something as well. But yeah, Charades was one I didn't like. Charades was the one where when I wrote my... MA essay on faces and the issues it had with fractional representation of mixed race people. I, at the end of that essay, wrote about how this trend has continued to modern Star Trek in aspects because we have this new iteration of Spock and he's still tackling these same problems and being portrayed in the same way. But I really hope that show can move past that and blah, 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 blah. And then literally read the episode description for Charades and I was like, 
no, you didn't just make Faces 2.0. You didn't do this to me personally. <laughs> Only six months after I did this essay. <laughs> among the Lotus Eaters, I didn't like that one that much either. Oh, we didn't really talk about that one that much. I didn't dislike the episode. I did quite like that one. It was a fine one for me. That society is completely terrifying. I don't understand how there is even a society there, frankly. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but the concept is so terrifying to me that... I was yeah. still willing to kind of buy into it on that level. We already talked about Ortega's realising that she's where she's supposed to be, which is a bit funny when she's clearly a bit dissatisfied yeah. with her job or whatever. But another bit of messaging in that episode bothered me as well, because you have this commentary on what you hold on to when you don't have your memories. And mm. it's all about trust your feelings, because the feelings are your truth that you can at least see as authentically your own. But any therapist will tell you that, your feelings can't be trusted in a lot of cases. Mm. In fact, that's what happens when your mental health is poor. Your feelings are telling you the wrong things. They're telling you that you're worthless. They're telling you that nobody likes you, all this stuff, anything really, that anything negative that you feel isn't true. So telling people, oh, you can trust your feelings, that's a bit muddled. Yeah, I agree with you. That one was like a mixed bag for me. And then... They were talking about removing the burdens that people carry associated with these memories, but La'an was still violent. Wouldn't it be more interesting if she'd been the most sedate and unburdened you'd ever seen her when she had no memory of her traumatic past? Yeah. She's a bit more like the bimbo princess she was in the last season. <laughs> Maybe not exactly like that. I want to see a return of that character so badly. <laughs> and, and Benga could have been a bit the same as well. Because what they're trying to say is that... This, like, essence of them was still there, somehow. The essence of them is inherently violent as well. Yeah. What they did was they doubled down on the character's foundational traits. So Mbenga was still a healer. Leanne was still a fighter. Pike was still a leader. But they could have played with it more. But you still needed Pike to be the action hero leader because he had to go and solve the problem. Yeah. It just didn't work for me. I just thought it was a completely messy and muddled experience. Yeah, that's fair. The planet they were on, Rigel 7, that's where they were immediately before the cage. Yeah. You see references to the battle that happened or the stuff that happened there in the cage. Gene Roddenberry wanted to world build, so Leonard Nimoy walks with a limp and stuff because they're oh, all okay. still healing from their injuries. So nice little bit of world building in the cage. From your knowledge of that, are they trying to portray that Rigel 7 as literally being the same place within canon or is it just kind of a neat reference? It's supposed to be the same place. Okay. Although one of Pike's memories is fighting a giant beast with a club or something like that. And you don't see that in Among the Lotus Eaters. <laughs> No. <laughs> it wasn't very good for me. That's the problem with a 10 episode season is if one episode or two episodes aren't very good, it feels like a huge waste of time. If it's a couple out of 26. Yeah, you kind of expect that in a 26 episode season, there's going to be some duds. And that's why season one was a bit of trouble for me because episode five was the body swap one. Didn't like that. Episode six was the plug a child into a computer episode. Didn't like that. That one didn't work for me either. Episode seven was the pirate one. Didn't like that. Episode eight was the princess bride one. Didn't like that either. So it was four episodes in a row that I wasn't keen on. Yeah, so for me it was the child sacrifice episode and the pirate episode where the storyline with Angel just didn't work for me. That child sacrifice episode, by the way, they ripped off from a short story written by someone and did not credit them. Oh, I didn't know that. And there's an original series episode, I think it might be Arena actually, where it was noted that there were some superficial similarities to a story that someone else had wrote and they credited them and paid them. Huh. Even though it wasn't a direct lift, but 
Apparently that's not a thing now. Not just pay your writers, pay other writers. <laughs> anyway, support the SAG after and WGA strike. <laughs> there was a Voyager episode as well, Blink of an Eye, you know, the one with the planet that moves really fast. That was based on a novel that they also didn't credit. Oh, that was a really cool episode. They should have credited whoever wrote the novel. The book is actually better. I think it's called Dragon's Egg. You know what? Now that you say that, I'm like, actually, yeah, that makes total sense as being some kind of sci-fi novella. No, it's a full-blown novel, I think. I think it's like 200-something pages. Oh, okay. I've read it a long time ago, because when I heard the Voyager episode was based on it, I was thinking, I wonder what a better version of this story would be like. And then I read the book. (laughs) It was the late-in-the-day Voyager clunky execution of a good idea. It's not the best. The episode, that is. But the book is really good. I mean, it's an enjoyable Voyager episode. Yeah, but it's late seasons, we're not really trying anymore type episode. We're not giving this our all. (laughs) So that's favourite episode. I think I've covered most of the notes. Wow. Yeah. Anything that's left is stuff we discussed earlier. So anything further on Strange New Worlds before we wrap up? Oh, I don't know. I feel like I've spoken a lot about Strange New Worlds. Wow, what a (laughs) surprise. Yeah, like I said, a season of some very extreme ups and downs for me. But even in episodes I didn't like, there are still things that are enjoyable. I really do love this show and I really love the cast. Still a charming cast, regardless of the quality of the episode. Yeah. I hope that we get a season three sometime while I'm still alive. It was ready to start shooting before the strike, apparently. Okay, cool. Hurry your asses up, Hollywood execs. The cliffhanger of the end of season two, or the entire last episode of season two not really working for me, kind of means that I'm a bit uh, about whatever the first episode is, because obviously that has to be the conclusion to the cliffhanger. From season one to season two, I was really excited to find out how things were going to throw down with Una's trial and stuff like that. This one, not so much. I don't find myself excited about the conclusion of the cliffhanger, yeah. Yeah, but I would be excited to just get into season three proper once they've dealt with that and had Battelle's funeral. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually what a lot of classic Star Trek first season episodes often felt like. Well, mostly in Voyager. DS9 didn't do cliffhangers in the same way Voyager did. Voyager did the cut mid-scene type cliffhangers. And usually Mm. you do that first episode and you you just want to get it out of the way. Although... Even though Equinox had a crap cliffhanger ending, I thought the second part of Equinox was actually really good. Mm -hmm. I didn't find this cliffhanger engaging. It didn't have the effect of, oh my God, I can't wait to see the next episode that it should. I'm not sitting there burning in anticipation. It actually just made me frustrated because I was like, it's a cliffhanger, but I'm not enjoying this episode. (laughs) Now I have to watch more of this episode. (laughs) Yeah, I became aware very quickly that it was not going to, end in one episode because 30 minutes in and they've not really done anything yet yeah i look forward to season three of strange new worlds just probably not the first episode obviously i'm gonna watch it make your prediction of which original series character will they introduce next season probably roger <laughs> corby but he's only in one episode i mean yeah corby obviously let's get yeoman rand yeoman rand okay let's redeem her next <laughs> we're redeeming all these female characters who are underwritten so let's redeem yeoman rand <laughs> She's only in a couple episodes of the original series, but yeah. Yeah, she's just sort of there to be frightened, isn't she? Yeah. Let her be a person now. And to scratch Kirk's evil transporter duplicate in the face, she does that. Doesn't she give him massages and stuff as well? Normal Kirk, not rapey Kirk. Yeah. She uses a phaser to heat up coffee. She does that once. Yeah. Yeoman Rand, that'd be an interesting one. (laughs) Doesn't count, but Carol Marcus, I think we'll see her. Oh yeah, we'll probably see her, I guess. My guess would be Bones. 
Or Gary Mitchell. I feel like we'll get Gary Mitchell. Okay, so saying Bones. I don't want Mbenga to leave because, like I said, he's my favourite. Well, Mbenga's still on the Enterprise in Kirk's time. He's in two episodes of the original series, I think. Okay. So I'm wondering, basically, like, obviously McCoy ends up becoming the chief medical officer. So maybe something comes back around with the whole Ra thing and Mbenga gets fired or demoted or something. I don't want that to happen because I love Mbenga. (laughs) But now I'm like, hmm, maybe. In Kirk's pilot, it's a different doctor as well. It's not McCoy or Mbenga. It's, I forget the guy's name, but someone else. Hmm. So my guess would be Gary Mitchell, because he's Kirk's best friend that's on the Enterprise for his pilot. He's the one that becomes godlike and then gets crushed by a rock. Oh, uh, yeah. It's so funny introducing these characters knowing that they have these ridiculous fates. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, I really like this guy. I don't want to see him crushed by a rock, but it's going to happen. <laughs> it is weird when you introduce these characters through hindsight, in a way, as in, you know, how they end up. And then they end up making something big out of them and then they have to just slink off and have some kind of unceremonious ending. Yeah, which would be a real shame for Mbengo. In the original series, is he just a doctor? Like a random doctor on the ship? I actually don't remember what he does in the episodes he's in. I think he's just in sickbay. The Enterprise had more than one doctor, which makes sense because it has to service 400 people. Hundreds of people there, yeah. (laughs) One doctor, one bar, one food replicator. The Enterprise D had more than one doctor as well. It's just Crusher was the chief medical officer. Yeah. They show that in Strange New Worlds too. You see other medical stuff. It's just Mbenga and Chapel are the main characters. I feel like it doesn't make sense that Chapel's a nurse though. She knows way more than you would expect nurses to know how to do. Yeah, I think they tried to bill it as she's a bit more of a researcher, but has field medic experience. Also a nurse. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. She was a nurse in the original series, so she has to be a nurse in this one. So she's a nurse now, yeah. Uh. (laughs) But they also made her a brilliant scientist at the same time, because why not? And also a badass. (laughs) Yeah, and also a badass. I actually expected them to do something between Una and Chapel because they were played by the same actress in the original series. Oh, yeah. It'd be a stupid joke they would make, like someone would mix them up or something. Yeah, they look so vastly different, though. (laughs) That would be the joke. It's like the joke they make in Deep Space Nine when... O'Brien thinks that Kirk's at the table with Chekhov, but it's actually in The Trouble with Tribbles it was Shatner's stuntman playing that role. Oh, uh, yeah. Everybody knew that Shatner's stuntman looked absolutely nothing like him. You could tell at the time, <laughs> yeah. but if you watch the original series in HD, it's even more apparent. Mm-hmm. The episode where he fights Khan in the engine room and in, in an identical room, there's two other guys with the same clothes fighting as well. So <laughs> ridiculous it is. I love stuff like that, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) So they could make that joke with Una and Chapel. Or maybe they get a body swap episode for some reason. Yeah, for some reason. We need another one of those, apparently. (laughs) But my guess for original series cast, he's not even an original series cast member, he's in one episode, but Gary Mitchell, that'd be my guess. Okay, yeah, that's fair. If they're going to keep Kirk around, they will have to bring him in at some point. It's probably a more accurate guess than mine. Mine is just, it would be neat for this other female character who is very underwritten to get better written. (laughs) (laughs) Yeoman Rand who just hangs around between regimes on the Enterprise. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they could. Do they even have Yeoman anymore in the show? You never hear anyone called Yeoman. They have mentioned Yeoman, yeah. Okay. And under the cloak of war, Pike goes to get some spice that could be lethal in large doses, but delicious in small doses. And and Benga says, you could have just sent a Yeoman. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does say that, doesn't it? It feels like kind of a weird dated concept, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it's all just based on Navy terms and stuff, isn't it? In this socialist utopia, I want to be the captain's servant, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> In this socialist utopia, we can't have women on the bridge. Hmm. <laughs> 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 Even though it's practically all women on the bridge. Yeah, it's a nice step forward. <laughs> just Pike and Spock, they're the only two men on the bridge. Mm. Oh, something else that would be nice for season three is, I know Mitchell is a very secondary, even tertiary character, but it would be cool for her to get a bit more to do. Well, I wonder if she's going to be related to Gary Mitchell, because they have the same surname. Oh, uh, yeah. I think her name's Jenna Mitchell. I'm not sure. I don't know. I know her name, though, which means she's more developed than some of the Discovery Bridge crew. <laughs> the Discovery Bridge crew based entirely on visuals for a really long time. And then I remember Oo and, oh no, I did know her name. Detmer. Detmer, yeah. Those two just because they're the most forefront developed ones. There was the cool robot lady who died. They're kind of characters. Yeah. I don't know, there's Reese, I think one guy's name is. Yeah. And then there's just like a bunch of other people who hang around. There's a guy who leaves to do something else. I think it's towards the end of season four of Discovery. And Saru's like, we're really going to miss you around here. And I'm like, I don't know who this is. <laughs> Why are we getting a scene devoted to the fact that he's not going to be here anymore? I don't care. I don't know who he is. Oh, Disco. He's a glorified extra. He's an extra who gets paid to be on a show the entire time. I don't know. Push buttons. Yeah. But season three, whenever we get it, I'll be glad to see it. Yeah, me too. Resolve the strike, get back in production, and let's get more Star Trek out. Yeah. So any wrap up thoughts then? I mean, I think we covered it all already. More please. Yeah. I'll go with that. More please, but also better than last time. <laughs> so that was our discussion about Star Trek Strange New Worlds Season 2. I'd like to thank Le Orchestra Cinematique for their cover of the original series theme tune. Check out their YouTube channel as well. It will be in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please do subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts, you can subscribe. And normally you can rate and review on these platforms as well usually with a star for Star Trek rating. Issa, how many stars should people give us? 11 out of 10. 11 out of 10, even though they only do it by five. Yes. Breach the barrier. Just go for it. Just try hard and believe in yourself. You can do anything. <laughs> yeah. If you want to talk to us about Strange New Worlds, Star Trek in general, or anything else, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter slash X under Neil Before Blog. Or you can reach out to us on neilbeforeblog.co.uk, leave a comment there. You can also join our Discord as a listener and chat to us on there as well if you want. But as always, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod. Hit it. <laughs>